0: Hello and welcome to the sad duty we have at the cinephiles, which is to honor and celebrate the great artists that we've lost. And just a couple of days ago, we lost – or just – yeah, a couple of days ago, we lost Rutger Hauer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is a big figure for me. Okay. More so than maybe the movies I think that I've seen. Okay. I mean I've seen certainly – certainly obviously the one that was most impactful and the one we're going to re-release today Mm -hmm. is Blade Runner where he just steals the whole movie. Yeah.
1: He's the reason to watch the movie and it's not just his incredibly fit shape the the blonde locks the overall look of
0: him he's just Cool, man. Well, it takes a movie that where you know it could be, well, this is just the bad guy. Yeah. And turns it into this complicated, compelling, sensitive. And and really and as you're gonna hear in this conversation, it's one of my favorite episodes of our show, is that and that maybe he's the good guy. Maybe yeah. that's the hero. Yeah. On some level. I mean his story is so compelling. Mm-hmm. And of course that moment at the end, which was his I think he improvised a lot of that final yeah, speech. H- him and Ridley worked together yeah. to get that final speech. Yeah. Uh, He's such a presence. I've Mm -hmm. seen Soldier of Orange, but not in a really, really long time. Okay, okay. Um, And I'll tell you, can I tell you my guilty pleasure? Please. One of my favorite guilty pleasures. (laughs) Blind Fury. Yeah. Blind. I mentioned it today on movie
1: or the other day on Movie Talk when we were doing our tribute to him. I said he was great in everything he
0: was in, even in something uh, cheesy or walking the line like Blind Fury. I mean but you know it's like i I consumed every martial artsy kind of thing, and of sure. course this is sorta of based on you know zatachi blind swordsman. Yeah. And it, I'd be terrified to watch it today. I haven't watched it in fifteen years. Really? Uh, does it hold up? Have you seen it recently? I know. It, it never held. I didn't hold up when I watched it in the eighties. <laughs> so
1: totally I'll be honest liked with it in you in the eighties. <laughs> so, but for me, uh, for me, it's Nighthawks. That's where it all starts. Oh sure, yeah. Because I didn't know who Rucker Howard was till I saw Nighthawks. And Nighthawks, I watched because I was a Rocky fan and mm. Stallone. I'm like, I gotta see. Stallone. So wait, you saw that before you saw Blade Runner? Before I saw Blade Runner. Wow. Yeah. So it was like to see Nighthawks because it was on TV. I remember watching it on TV and seeing what he did with with that role, and you're like, "Oh, this guy's playing a terrorist," and what do you do with that? Yeah. And so for me, it was awesome to watch, and uh, I became such a fan of his from there. And then seeing this, and I thought he was going to be this
0: superstar, yeah, right. It almost feels like he was. Do you know, mm. you know, in this weird way, it's like even though you can't, other than the few movies that we've mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you can't look to this huge career, and yet he's so impactful mm-hmm. in terms of maybe, you know, this is this weird thing is that sometimes one performance and you just locks you into people's brains. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that Roy Batty performance in Blade Runner. Is huge. Absolutely. And for
1: so many reasons we have we spoke about on the episode of Blade Runner, his journey, him trying to find out who he is. You could argue absolutely, you said at the beginning of this tribute, Steve, that he is the protagonist because right. his journey is the one we're following. Deckard's not on any kind of real journey. It's actually Batty who's on the journey to figure out why he was created, why he has a termination and what his reasons for existence are.
0: Well, and, and the more you think about Deckard, the more you're like, this is not a good Good God. No. You Kills know, his own, possibly. Yeah, well, and, and and I mean, even if because if the if the structure of the movie is that these are sentient beings, yeah, like that's sort of what we're going to discover. Well, he's the guy who's made a career of hunting down, yes, and m- m- killing sentient beings. Yeah, it's funny. I remember, like, it's it's one of my my favorite podcasts. This episode with Scott Manns, mm-hmm, definitely. I, two things I remember about it. One is that uh, uh, I came up with an idea which I still think is great, which is the story of those replicants and their escape. Yeah. You know, it's like actually a tell the story, a prequel sure. of that world and the, the 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 rebellion and the discovery of sentience. That's actually a cool idea. I agree. The other thing I remember, I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. We were sitting in my house recording the episode uh-huh. and I was arguing with Mance about something. I, don't, you, yeah, I remember. Are you kidding? Of course. And there was this moment where you gave me a look of like, what the hell yeah, are you doing? Why are you trying to fight with our guests? Because <laughs> <who's>, <laughs> this was
1: the first episode I think we ever did second, with Scott. Second. We second. did okay. was first. All right. right, was first. But I, I sense there was a legitimate argument about to b- erupt between you two because there was no giving on the positions that you were taking. See, and I, for me, it was just so, we're having an interesting, right, disagreement right. about right. a point in film, right? And I was just concerned because I I, I, I don't mind us having different opinions. The guest, that's kind of the fun part of the show. Sure. But I was afraid it was going to
0: escalate and so and it didn't, obviously. No. But like, it, there was that there was I think that's one of the rare moments in. Time I, th- I, it's v- I can't I can't remember another one. Yeah, I remember. The look you gave me was like, "What the hell are you doing?" And I went, and I had the moment of like, "Wait, what the hell am I doing?" Like, is there a problem? Because I had no idea there was a problem. Yeah. So uh, your yeah. mission, as you listen to this episode, <laughs> is see if you can figure out the moment that Roka gave me that look. I know, right? <laughs> see if you can hear it through our words, <laughs> through our voices, <laughs> through our voices. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we did want to take a moment to uh, uh, honor Rutger Hauer, and really, we did want to re-release one of our favorite episodes. Yeah. So, so take, sit back and relax, and enjoy going back in time to our discussion with the great Scott Mance of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner they're just questions Leon
2: in answer to your query they're written down for me it's a test designed to provoke an emotional response shall we continue describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother your mother yeah Let me tell you about my mother.
0: Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm John Roca. You guys have heard me many times on this show already. So I'm a voiceover artist, actor, host of shows in L.A., and I am crazy super excited for
0: this episode of The Cinephiles. And wow. we are very happy to welcome back to our microphones... One of our greatest and possibly most requested guests of all time,
3: (laughs) Scott Mance from Access Hollywood. I think so. I think we can fairly say that. Yes. Well, fellas, it is great to be back here talking movies with you. The only way to follow The Wrath of Khan, the Citizen Kane of Star Trek movies, (laughs) is by talking about the most influential sci-fi movie of all time. You, You could say that might be 2001. It might be Planet of the Apes. I think it's Blade Runner, and it is my number one favorite movie of all time. Wow. Bar none. That's amazing. So when you come back on The Cinephiles
0: from this point forward, it's all downhill. It's downhill from here, boys. <laughs> every movie you're going to like less. Than what we're talking about uh, right well, now.
3: Well, listen, uh, and by the way, you know, for those of you who don't know me, then uh, yeah. shame on you, but I'm the film critic for Access Hollywood, and I do a bunch. Uh, I do No, I do movie fights, yes. I used to do a show called Profiles, and uh, I do uh, Q&As and panels uh, throughout Los Angeles and uh, cover film festivals around the country. Um, that yes. was an excellent back introduction of my poor introduction. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank you. I yeah.
0: salute you. Uh, and, and yes, the movie we're talking about uh, is Blade Runner. And since this is your
3: favorite film of all time, I can't wait to find out. How did you first come to it? Okay, well, it is my favorite movie of all time, fellas, but it was not always uh, my favorite movie of all time. In fact, when I saw it on June 25th, 1982, yeah, the same weekend That John Carpenter's The Thing opened. The same month that E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Poltergeist opened. Wow. What a month. June of 1982. Incredible. You know, I was coming off these movies, and I thought it was going to be an exciting science fiction film. I was thinking of Harrison Ford, The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Dark. So 13-year-old kid goes in to see Blade Runner, and- Walks out of the theater, scratching his head, going, what the hell was that? (laughs) I did not like it at all. And a lot of people didn't get it. It bombed on its first release. But the way I really came to understand and really get Blade Runner was I, I moved to California from Philadelphia in 1991. So 1992 was the 10th anniversary of Blade Runner. It was also the release of the director's cut. Right. So when I saw the director's cut, I had 10 years of perspective on film. Right. I also was grown up. So when I went to the New Art Theater in West L.A. and saw the director's cut, which got rid of Harrison Ford's god awful voiceover, mm-hmm. and added in a short, very brief dream sequence sequence with a unicorn yeah. mind blown. My whole perspective on the film changed, and it immediately shot up to one of my favorite movies of all time. And when the final cut came out in 2007, the 25th anniversary of Blade Runner, yeah. it, it was now my number one favorite movie of all time. It grew on me, and I think that's why it stays there. Mm. So, and,
0: and you've already answered one of the things that I know we're going to talk about, which
3: is and now I know
0: which version you prefer. It's very, right. very clear. Right. Um, John, how about you? Uh, I came to it
1: uh, on video, like on VHS. I remember rent. it was one of the first films I rented because once again, I was—I think I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I started to read articles about films because I was so getting into this idea loving films so much. And this was one that people talked about in film magazines as being like classic and ahead of its time and whatever and so when I watched it I absolutely loved it and the the voiceover didn't bother me as much because that last scene when he says what he says to him in voice I don't know why he let me live there was just something about that affected me and the noir aspect of it all was so awesome and I, I'm such a fan of the rain that to me the film is all dark and rainy and to me it just spoke all levels and the romance between him and Sean Young for whatever reason it has struck it struck a incredibly powerful chord with me. So you liked the it was. the first
3: time you saw I it. I did.
1: I liked it the first time I saw it, and I would rent it over and over again every few months. Uh, while it- and then when the director's cut came out, and I remember I went to see it in the theater. I think it was downtown in DC at the Uptown, yep. and without any uh, voiceover, I loved it even more. And the unicorn thing was so amazing because that was when I was starting to read articles about whether is Deckard- is Deckard a replicant, and so you're just like, whoa! So the film. Uh, never ages for me I still think it's the greatest Science fiction film Ever made I think the special effects Still hold up to 2017 Rewatched it again For this podcast And there's only two sequences Or two scenes Where I think the special effects Doesn't 100% look real And But other than that The film is still powerful I think the narrative Still works And so for me It has been a film That's always echoed In my heart Always Just Always, something about Harrison Ford's performance, Sean Young's beautifulness captured at this time, and Rutger Hauer's ruthlessness. Yeah, just all of it. Uh, and watching it over and over again, I get. And just like the great films we talk about, Steve, on this podcast. You get something new out of it every time you watch it, no matter where you are in life. Yeah. What about
3: you, Steve? How about the first time you saw it? So
0: I don't know. I cannot, strangely enough, I can't remember the first time. And and usually, because usually if I saw it in a theater, I can usually remember the theater. Mm. And I can't remember the theater, so it's very possible I didn't see it in the theater. But I saw it soon after. I think you know because I'm starting high school in mm-hmm. in '83, and uh, I know I was it was in that VHS uh, rotation, and I loved it with the voiceover. Mm. I love, and I remember yeah. I definitely remember going to see it at the seeing the director's cut at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland mm. uh, when it came out, and I remember i had seen the, the theatrical cuts so many times that I could hear the voiceover playing.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, interesting. That's yeah, great. I mean, I knew what every... You saw the voiceover, voiceover of... version that many times where oh, even I, when you're watching it without it, you're still hearing it. I yeah, could still great. hear it. Okay. And so
0: one of the interesting things about this movie, because we have multiple versions, I think there are like yeah. six versions total, is that I can't not have the experience with the theatrical version and really turn that off. Mm. You know? So it's it's a little hard for me to go, because I, I probably saw it 2013 40 times yeah. at least yeah. you know because we rented it over mm-hmm. and over again yep. and i think i had it on vhs for a long time and so it was a long time before i saw the director's cut right um and and for me it's sort of well i love that theatrical version i love the director's cut for different reasons mm-hmm. they're they're different films in a lot of ways and it's funny though like because i went through in, in doing research for this i went through and went okay what are all the changes
3: they're not that many yeah no there's not it's they're very very few. It's not like you're watching like Star Wars, uh, A right. New Hope with right. a special edition where right. there's so many changes to it,
0: right? Or or like Apocalypse Now Redux, where <laughs> oh yeah, it's,
3: right. it's, Apocalypse Now Redo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally totally different, yeah,
0: different movie. Um, uh, uh, so I think to start on this, the first person we really got to talk about is Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people talk about. I always heard this thing of like, there's the ABCs of science fiction: Asimov, Bradbury, and uh, and Clark. Yeah. Um and this is kind of the D to it, me. It, it, it. Um, right. Not that he's as good a writer, I would say. I don't know how if you've read some of his stuff. Some of it, they're okay, they're okay. But right. the ideas in terms of science fiction, he's well, some of the greatest ideas, and he's given us more science fiction movies than anyone I can yeah. think of. Yeah, you know, between Total Recall and Minority Report and Waking have, Life, right? Yeah, uh, Scanner Darkly. Right. And yeah. then we got Man in the High Castle. Right. You know, and, and the sort of ideas of. What is real? What is not? And the speculation about what it is to be alive, and mm-hmm. what is how does your brain work, and what is consciousness, and what is you know all of those things? That's really really deep in what science fiction is. You and know? you
3: know a lot of a lot of the themes that Philip K. Dick has explored in *Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?* right. Which is the story that Blade Runner is based on, were explored in other films mm-hmm. uh, that Philip K. Dick. Yeah, you, know, you know The, the uh, adaptations Of those mm-hmm. movies But also just In other films Period Like you look At the last Let's see What is it uh, uh, Almost 30 years You know Now that uh, Blade Runner Came out yeah. And uh, Wait wait 82 it's 35 yeah, it's almost 35 30, yeah, 30 years, years yeah. Man Good gosh, yeah. man! Math is not my strong point. <laughs> Movie release dates yes, are my sure. strong point, not math. I don't know why. That's so. That's so, so weird. pay attention to this for your next uh, schmooze. Yeah, that's right. This that's is right. where you could take him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About take me down with math. <laughs> the math. Uh, two plus four. What? Oh, but but really, guys. Um, you know when you when you look at uh, a lot of movies that have come out since then, like Strange Days, right. yeah. uh City of Lost Children, mm-hmm. uh, one of my f- other favorite movies of all time, Children of Men, yeah, Minority sure. Report, which is obviously based on Phil. K. Dick but also just uh, Just recently had Ghost in the Shell Yeah And not a good film Nope But I'm watching the Movie going it's Blade Runner Mm -hmm. Especially the Landscapes on the Buildings the Japanese
1: stuff all Of it It's so cyberpunk
3: It is freaking Blade Runner and I'm watching Ghost in The Shell going like I'd rather be watching Blade Runner. <laughs> right. And you're, I'm thinking about Blade Runner Why, yeah. while watching Ghost in the Shell thinking, this movie is 35 years old and it still looks like yeah. it could have been shot today. It's still ahead of its time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Looks better, honestly. Yeah. because And, and we're going to get into this in detail, obviously. But A, it looks amazing. And B, it's real. Yes. You know, and that's the thing, you know, we, 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 we CG has come so far and it's so amazing. But this real is still real. Yeah. And when you see you know real things and real humans interacting with real stuff, yeah.
1: it's just different. I just love the sequence with the with the cop car at, uh, when he's like questioning. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's just like just the just the exhaust coming out as it's levitating out is just so believable and it doesn't look like it's yep. on strings or anything like that. It looks so real and it just it's those little things that make you feel like you are actually in the world that you are watching. And, and so also great.
3: also too, you know, a lot of those billboards have been taken down and going out because uh, pe- people were complaining that. That they were distracting, and like people who lived in those areas were were didn't like having the lights shining in their windows. Uh. But you know, for a few years there around L.A. and and in New York and some other cities too, big cities around the country, they had you had the virtual billboards. Yes, right. And as soon as I started seeing those, especially on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, the first thing I thought of was Blade Runner. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Me too. Same thing. Well, there's so much in this movie that. Is you know there are things obviously that our world doesn't look like mm-hmm, this world, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of things are like yep, yeah. yeah that's it absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, we start with Philip K. Dick, and uh, the first screenwriter they bring on is Hampton Fancher, um, and he I think really gets developed in that post Star Wars post-alien science fiction is big money hmm. let's see what we can do
3: and it starts off as a fairly small budget movie it started off as a fairly small movie. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it turned into one of the most notorious shoots in hollywood history wow and who do you
0: uh, think is responsible for that uh change from small budget to notorious well
3: listen you know the studio that released the film was warner brothers the director who worked on the film you know ridley scott we have to talk about Ridley Scott, you know, yeah. I don't know if this is the right time to really intro him, but Absolutely. the That's... only the only big big studio film he had done prior to this was uh, John Rocha's favorite Ridley Scott movie (laughs) called Alien. Alien, Yes, And uh, we have argued about (laughs) the Alien versus Blade Runner elsewhere in our infamous one-on-one Screen Junkies two-hour-plus marathon movie fights that everyone says that Rocha should have won. And I have to say, truth be told... You crushed that, brother! Don't you stop should, it. You should nope. have won that damn thing, well, especially the last question. You yeah. know where I had to fight in favor of Moonlight. I yeah. did such a poor job of that. <laughs> Jeez, you know. Anyway, tell Andy uh, that. Oh, geez. give uh, up your but, spot no, then. We're give digressing up. Yeah. here <laughs> because we can digress. Yes, but you know Ridley Scott was still an up and comer. He was a visionary because of what he had accomplished on Alien. Yeah, but he was working with. Uh, with a, a I believe an American crew for the first time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a, a trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. He the the crew did not like his style. He was not an easy director to work with. The shoot from start to finish was very difficult. It went way over budget. It went way over schedule. Uh, He was a stickler for the details, which is a good thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. you want a director who's going to do that. But at the same time, the the, the crew started calling the film, not Blade Runner, Blood Runner. Wow. And also, you know, uh, Will Rogers had that saying, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, (laughs) the crew started making t-shirts. That said, Will Rogers never met Ridley Scott. Oh man! So wow. and and then you know he butted heads with Sean Young, he butted heads with Harrison Ford. Mm. Uh, but in the end, it's it's a masterpiece. Yeah. No, so, this is
0: this is something we've come up over and over again on the cinephiles, which is a lot of times these great directors aren't necessarily so nice, right? Not so easy to work with, and not necessarily liked during the process. We came up against it in Apocalypse Now. We came yeah. up against it in, in The Shining. Charlie Chaplin, my yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Like James Cameron, he shoots with a British crew on yeah. Aliens. They didn't like him. Yeah, He had a real rough time at James Cameron. Also, stickler for the details. Yeah. Obsessive about being right and getting things done his way. Titanic. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, this is... You know, this is something we're going to see over and over again with filmmakers. There are also Ron Howard and Rob Reiner and people that are lovely to work with. Yeah, sure. Uh, Steven Spielberg's not supposed to be like this. But there's some people that are like this. Well, I would
1: defend a little bit really Scott to be like, well, sometimes American crews can be very, very, uh, uh, can be jerks, can be assholes because they want their breaks. Teamsters, you you know, you've seen that in unions. They can be quite like real anal retentive about stuff and pushy about stuff. And, you know, that can be hard for a British filmmaker who is used to the British crews being a bit more malleable. So that's going to happen. Right. And there's natural resentment at times between American versus British that has been around since the dawn of this country. So it's not a surprise that at times it creeps in. So maybe some of that was going on there too, you know? So it, it's certainly, well, none of us were on the set, so it's certainly possible.
3: Well, I you know, I, I, I was going to bring up uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. Oh, right, I yeah. mean, Oof. you know, like after, after the two Godfather films and the conversation, he put everything, mm-hmm. and I mean everything, into the making of Apocalypse Now, including mortgaging his house yeah. to, uh, to, to, to finish it up. And, uh, you know, that saying in the film, you know, never get off the boat. Well, Coppola got off the boat when that movie was finished because he has never made a masterpiece since.
1: Yes. No, that's a great you point. You know,
3: that was it. He had four great movies in the 70s. Yep. And, you know, then he did, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, the Outsiders and, you know, like right. Peggy Sue got married, you know. Yeah. But nothing ever Rainmaker. equated his own. Rainmaker. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, he never equated that. Mm-hmm. Agreed.
0: No, it's absolutely true. I mean, it seems like that movie broken. You know? Yeah. Yeah. On, on some well, what we should say, most filmmakers don't have more than mm-hmm. you have three or four great masterpieces. You did good, you right? Know? Right.
3: Well, look, at, I mean Spielberg's masterpiece films. He's actually a director who's had like maybe like six or seven. Yeah. Because you have Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, E. T., uh, Schindler's List, Private yeah. Ryan. Those are okay. Six. Yeah. Um, really, four know. though. What's that? Yeah, really four, four. Yeah, E.T. Yeah, e. really. and Private Ryan can go. Away. You know yeah. what? E.T. Like, e. is a masterpiece. It's not a masterpiece. Come on, it is a masterpiece. It's not, it's a not a movie We're not on <laughs> movie fights. <Very> <laughs> not movie fights. Yeah, it's not movie fights. But but yeah. you know there are so many other elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there's there's the direction. There's obviously the cinematography. Yeah. There is the production design, the costume design, and the music, the score. Mm-hmm. Is brilliant. Oh, you're it talking is, for, the, for Blade Runner? Yeah, for yeah, Blade Runner. The Vangelis. Vangelis, Vangelis yeah. oh, that score. Yeah. score. Is
0: it Vangelis or Vangelis? I've never known. Uh, I, Van, I say Vangelis.
1: Vangelis. It's probably so, Vangelis. Vangelis. Who knows?
0: Well, you could, uh, anyone out there who yeah. knows, if Mr. Vangelis or Vangelis are there, you could come talk to us. Yeah, <laughs> Let talk us know. to us. Correct us.
3: We'll be happily. St- we will happily yes.
0: uh, stand corrected if if
1: we're corrected by you, sir. I don't. I don't um. buy many soundtracks, and I bought the soundtrack score for this film and for Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is one of my favorite films, bar none, the, and I love his score for both of these movies. The they somehow with work the,
3: with the soundtracks. That have been officially released for Blade Runner yeah. is that none of them are the complete scores. Right. Yes. Agreed. So, so uh, years ago, I went on eBay and someone was selling a bootleg version of the complete score to Blade Runner. Wow. So, you know, I, I bought it and I thought, you know, I was thinking like it would be like a a, a muffled copy. It would not be right. up to par with the official version. And it is. Wow. It is okay. uh, like it's a two disc set that has all. Of the music every last note of that film. Yeah, and uh, even some of the uh, background uh, Atmosphere like when he's going through Animoid Row uh, You know like everything and like when he first enters the Bradbury building And and here, you know, you're you're, he's going up the stairs and it's cutting to Pris Mm -hmm. You know sort of like going back and forth it is Every new I'll make a copy for you guys. Definitely. I would love that. Well, what's interesting
0: about the score is it happens at that moment, which is, you know, it's a synth score. And there's a lot of times you listen to a synth score from the early 80s and you go, ugh, that sounds like a synth score from Uh the early 80s. Uh This sounds like the score to Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, It's the same thing we saw, again, it's funny we keep coming back to it, but Apocalypse Now also synth score, late 70s, and it's a great score. And it's interesting, like, when people use these... Technological tools that have to advance are going to advance so much mm-hmm. in the next thirty years, and they use them perfectly. And yeah. this is such a great example. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I didn't know is I didn't know that Ridley Scott was going to make Dune before this. Oh yeah.
3: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 So he David was. Lynch. He
0: was. He was actually developing Dune. Yeah. They were doing set designs, and then I guess his elder brother died right before making this film. Really shook him up. And he he decided not to do Dune and jumped over to Blade Runner. Mm. And I was thinking about us watching Blade Runner because it is, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long time, by the way. Mm. So I'd seen it a ton. Right. I don't even know if I'd seen it in the last five years. And to watch it again, it's like, and watching the final cut, which is what I watched for the show. Yeah, it's like, man, this is a this is a movie's got a lot of heaviness. Oh yeah, you know, it weighs on you. And I was thinking about. Ridley Scott uh, this event of his brother's death and coming in and driving the crew and driving this production right. in this extremely intense way and I can't say that those things are connected, but maybe they are
1: I think maybe you I think you're right to say they're connected Steve because it, it explores death the whole film explores death and right life. and life exactly even that sequ- that sequence of Roy batty confronts Terrell he says i I want what you can't you might not be able to give me I want more life I and, want and, and more Terrell, life yeah and Terrell Fucker. says yeah, right. Yeah, and Terrell says yeah. what he says, and that's the exploit. That's everything comes to that that scene. Everything leads to that scene of him, which isn't which is almost an hour and a half into the movie, or an hour and twenty minutes in the movie, and it finally happens. And he confronts him, and he has that conversation. He wants more life, and this is the whole thing. So maybe he's working out these things about his the death of his brother. Maybe. Like, he'd want him to like. How could his brother have lived longer? Like, how is this possible if it was a surprise or something that that wasn't uh, expected? And
0: so that, I, I love that. that. I'm sure that influenced what was going on. And and the relationship I think between the meaning of your life yes. and your longevity, you yes. know, like like what is the value? Who am I? Yeah. As, and, and what is the value that I bring to the world? And particularly based on how long am I going to live? What if my days are numbered? You know,
1: the light that burns shortest burns brightest, and you have shone so brightly,
0: Roy.
3: Uh, oh, that's it's such a it's such a great scene. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so Hampton Fancher is writing the script. The original title is Dangerous Days because I guess they didn't want to do Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep, <laughs> which I actually really like that title by the way. Title. And they bring in Ridley Scott, and man, as soon as Ridley Scott comes in, this production it sounds like it's just a whirlwind. Like he is changing things every single day. Every single day, things aren't good enough. The script is constantly changing. Every time he walks into a, a design meeting, mm-hmm. looks at a set, everything is constantly changing. There was something one of the producers said. He said something like, every time Ridley Scott, Scott picks up a pencil, it's going to cost you hundreds of dollars. Every time he picks up a pen, it's going to cost you thousands. <laughs> um, and, and one of the great, some of the great influences is, because we know that as we talked about when we did Alien, that Ridley Scott has a design background. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a guy who really understands his way around visuals and some of the influence he's really had was Mobius, the great uh graph uh comic book artist. Right. Um that's and you could see his influence in it. He also brings in Sid Mead and I think they brought in Sid Mead for like 1500 bucks a day to come work for a couple of days but then he ended up working for months and months and months which wow. cost him a lot of money <laughs> oh my um, uh and you could see his design uh, you know throughout this whole thing mm-hmm. um and when it gets and the budget starts going because it's supposed to be a small budget movie starts going up starts going up and that's when they have to bring in warner brothers and alan ladd jr
3: well no you, yeah. you, you you're talk, you talk about the uh, the production design you talk about the the visual effects douglas trumbull Mm, Douglas Trumbull who was part uh, who did the groundbreaking effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey Mm. he did the effects for Close Encounters of the Third Mm -hmm. Kind and at the last minute he jumped in to basically save Star Trek The Motion Picture which if you ask if you ask Douglas Trumbull about Star Trek, the motion picture to this day, he still shrugs his shoulders and goes, like, oh, that movie was a mess. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> um, it was. <laughs> but Blade Runner, on the other hand, like like with the way when you see the spinners flying around, you see the the glow around the lights. Yeah. You know, that came from – you know, that that was very evident in the special effects for Close Encounters as well. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the, the cityscape, you know, Los Angeles, 2019. Yeah. That when you're watching the movie for the first time in 1982, it feels like a long way off. Yeah. Well, as of this taping, <laughs> it is two and a half years away. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine how apeshit fans are going to go when they go to see the original Blade Runner in theaters in November of 2019, especially in Los Angeles? Yeah. Like it's gonna be great. Yeah. Can we make a date? Yes. Yeah, oh done. my let's god! Do it. Right now, let's, let's get our it. tickets now. Yeah. It's gonna be at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Oh, sure. it's we're be, we're yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, we love that.
0: They, uh They ended up. Mo- they wanted to shoot some on locations, but they couldn't find locations that are gonna look right. Uh, and so they shoot on the Warner backlot. And one thing I just want to say is the buildings that are in this movie are ones that every single person listening to this right now has seen hundreds and hundreds of times Mm. because it's the Warner Backlot. And that Backlot has been there for 50 years, and they've shot TV shows and movies and all sorts of stuff on those buildings, and you would never know that you are looking at anything you have ever seen before wow. in the way that this
3: thing is designed. It is crazy how much they transform that backlight. Whenever I go to Warner Brothers, let's say I go if I if I go for a, a press screening, I always give myself try to give myself enough time to get there early and go back to that backlight because it's not far from where the press screenings are. Right. And and I just like I'll look down the street and it's, you know it's bare, but. When Ridley Scott was making Blade Runner, he, he the the transformation of that backlot with all the detail and and all the props and all the lights and the the wires and the rain the Man. rain this this never ending wow. rain. I uh, and like you said, John, you know the the film noir. Yeah, is, it is a perfect blend on many levels because it is a. a it is the past mm-hmm. and the future. Mm-hmm. It is uh, you know the, the the cyberpunk element to it. Yeah. You know, there's so many elements that blend the past and the future in such a perfect way mm-hmm. that that really no other even other films that are inspired by it don't come close to matching it.
1: Yeah,
0: no,
3: it's absolutely true. And and
0: what you say about them combining these genres. It's so interesting to me because when we did Alien, that's a science fiction horror film. Mm -hmm. And this is a science fiction detective film, and particularly noir. Yes. And even though they're doing this futuristic vision, one of the things that's so brilliant is to create that vision they're drawing from the past. Mm-hmm. And there's this 40s looks to the costumes yes. and the way people talk. Yep. And and this is and, and we talked about this when we talked about Alien, is that one of the great design elements of Alien is that that is a lived-in world. Yeah. It's not a pristine world like we would see in Star Trek or these other places. Mm-hmm. It has dirt in it, Had people pick out their clothes, and their clothes are wrinkled, mm-hmm. and they sweat, and they smoke, and they live. And in this one... Same thing. Yep. We are in a lived-in science fiction yep. world, not a pristine one.
1: Even the sequences, Steve, I would say, like when he first encounters M- M- M At Walsh pulling out the... the, the the full bottle of liquor with yeah. the two shot glasses. The, the When they're watching the uh, the interview, it's the blue hue of the of the yep. film projector, that kind of thing. All that vibe is there. Uh, even M.M.A. Walsh's uh, look and clothes and uh, Edward James his hat, his cane, all of it is very, very 40s. The trench coat is a little bit, uh, it's kind of, you don't know what era that's from that Harrison Ford is wearing. It doesn't necessarily scream 40s, but it feels close enough that it feels evocative of that. And the one song in the film where you actually Hear lyrics one sounds more like a pointy sauce, yeah. right? yeah, yeah. yeah. one more
3: time. just Just because you mentioned the wardrobe, yeah, and, and to, to give it that noir look, but a futuristic look at noir is, uh, you know, the trench coats. And at one point during the development, they wanted Harrison Ford to wear a hat, just uh, like you know, the yeah. Marlowe did back in the day right well he had just done a movie where he wore a hat Mm. called raiders of the lost ark (laughs) and he did not want to wear a hat again so his hairstyle was originally just going to be you know parted to the side like it was in raiders of the lost ark and then he shows up with this buzz cut and People, you know, were like, uh, okay." He just wanted to look different. Yeah, he didn't want to look just like he did in his previous movie. Yeah. Even though the studio would have been perfectly happy with that to sort of like, you know, ride the wave of Raiders into right. Blade Runner, that probably would have helped the box office of Blade and Runner.
0: And I, this is funny that I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it because I didn't, I had never heard that story. But I remember seeing it. Mm-hmm. Can't remember if it was in a theater or not, but being. Finding that hairstyle so jarring, yeah. In the early '80s, like it was so different, and I so loved him as Han Solo and mm. Indiana Jones, and this was a completely different thing. One thing I didn't know about the casting process is that they were talking to Dustin
3: Hoffman. What Dustin Hoffman? Not only did, were they talking to him, but he had as as Deckard, oh my and God. he was so involved with the development of that <sighs> film yeah. that that a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the notes that he gave were used and when it came around to Harrison Ford doing the role he liked Dustin Hoffman's changes so much that that's why he agreed to do the film good god I can't even imagine the I can't Dustin either Hoffman. it's one of the weirdest <laughs> <laughs> well listen anytime you have an actor own and crush a role yeah. like that yeah. you yeah. cannot imagine anyone else playing the role yeah I guess like, so. I cannot imagine anyone else but Emma Stone playing Mia in La La Land. I could. Like, Not can good. you imagine if, if Emma Watson was going to play that role? Like, you know, because she was original, or Brie Larson? Brie Larson would kill it. Brie Larson, the next Meryl Streep? No. Oh my God! Movie <laughs> fights is crossing over into the cinephile. You make brought it, it over. You, you make it over. stop.
0: <laughs> maybe we should talk about this movie. Yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah, we should no. jump in. What's, What's the keep next thing? Going? So we're going. So so we start off with uh one of the most amazing special effect shots i yeah. think in hollywood history which is what they call i think they call it the hades shot which is this this camera moving in over these smokestacks yeah. in this version of la that's just remarkable yes dystopian, yeah. dystopian. dystopian.
3: Yeah. was the word that was kept with a capital d Wanted to overdrive with Blaverman, that opening shot before you even see that mm-hmm. the title card, Yeah. Los Angeles, November 2019, and then the smoke stacks are, are blowing up, and yeah. the fire and the brimstone, and, and, and
1: you and you combine that with the score because right from the first note yeah. of the score is boom, so Whee. you understand.
3: Wee, wee, yeah, this is what we're wee, dealing
1: with—the right. darkness, just a darkness, and the fire coming out amongst the things, amongst the landscape. All of it just puts you in a place, of feeling factories, feeling this kind of once again this combination of future and past. Past being uh, the factories of the industrial revolution combined with the advancement of electronics. So what we have is this combination is so great right from the beginning, and then you hear this—you hear the synthesizer music kick up as it's as you're going across. Because what are you
3: flying in? You're flying in this futuristic thing. We're and bigger, and yeah. guys, <laughs> cut in with those images yeah. of of the uh, hovering over yeah. the cityscape. There is an eye. Yeah, there right. There is an eye, and and it is never explained. Nope. It is never revealed whose eye <laughs> it is. Yes. And it gave me chills to hear Ridley Scott himself address that very scene at the beginning of Blade Runner. And he says, the reason that that is there. You think you are watching the film. The film is watching <laughs> you. That's awesome. Wow. And wow. Again, there's so no right. there's no callback yeah. to the eye. The 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 uh uh you don't know whose it is. Right. I mean you know it doesn't pull back to reveal a face. It's just you're flying over LA and this eye, which is reflecting the explosions of the smokestacks Mm -hmm. of the, of the uh, industrial landscape wasteland of Los Angeles is watching you. Yeah. Very 1984. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and it's funny because I was thinking back and going in almost all the science fiction we've gotten up to this point with the exception of planet of the apes, which is a different thing. We have always gotten a fair share of Nito. Of look at the future, yeah. Look at the cool stuff. Yeah. Even in Alien, which is a really dark film, yeah, yeah. it's still we're traveling in space and mm-hmm. we're seeing aliens and different these beautiful designs. And in right. this movie, it's it's saying your future might not be so good. Yeah, you know this is. This, look at what the real future is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Here are the consequences of the choices we're making. And, and and one thing just about that effect shot because we just have to keep reminding our audience that every single thing they see is real. Yeah, even and you know even if it's a matte painting, like somebody really painted that. Yeah. and this shot. Going up through those smokestacks and everything, I think it's like 17 passes. These are motion-controlled cameras that have to do pass after pass after pass. It's forced perspective Mm -hmm. on the way they did these kind of etched-out little uh, model sessions so that things are bigger in the foreground and getting smaller and smaller to create the sense of depth, and each explosion is its own pass. Like I mean, the time, the weeks of detailed... By hand work that it takes to make a shot like this yeah, is no, amazing. CGI.
3: Not even you know, no, not right. even a Blade Runner. I mean the first CGI shot ever was used in Wrath of Kai yeah. for the Genesis right. planet sequence, but that was like not even it's it was nothing. CGI before anybody knew what CGI was. Right.
0: Yeah. And at, you know, after this amazing effects and music opening, we go right into this very strange and always to me really uh distressing interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the unreal. tension in it is really high.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You're in a desert walking along in the
2: sand when all of a sudden is this the test now yes you're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you what look warm? down. what what desert it doesn't make any difference what desert is completely hypothetical but how come i'd be there maybe you're fed up maybe you want to be by yourself who knows you look down and you see a tortoise leon it's crawling towards tortoise?
0: you. tortoise what's
2: that
0: you know what a turtle is of course same thing we don't understand what's happening we don't know right. why we're here we don't know what these questions are and it's stressful and we don't know why it's stressful right well and also the sounds of everything right the the the, the, the electronic sounds
1: he brings over from alien the idea of the clip you yeah, hear these right. things. You yeah, you do themes. hear
3: sounds. Uh, the sound effects are very uh, uh, reminiscent yes. of aliens, which which is just three years before. Right. But so so when uh, Leon is taking the Voight comp test, yeah, uh, which is being used to determine whether or not he's a replicant. Right. So the question is, you know, he comes in, he sits down, and uh, Brian James, the great, the oh, late, the late, great, great. Right. actor, Brian James. Yes. Uh, is being, as Leon, is being given the Void Comp test. And it's, a, it's an unnerving sequence because mm-hmm. not only is there a tension between these guys, but you don't know. Don't understand it. What, why, is, why are they doing it? Like, what kind of an interview yeah, is this? Yeah, and also
1: the way he's cutting him off in the questions unsettles you, right? From yeah. the beginning, you're unsettled with the score, with the sound, with the factories, with the fire, all this stuff. Then this interview and the interview is unsettling too because it's not a normal conversation. It's not clipped at a normal pace. It's faster. It's, cu- it's more jarring. It's cutting. There's no respect being given one way or the other, right? And then there's a pullback. Well, these are just
0: questions and answer to your query. They're given to me, blah, blah, blah. And then boom. By the way, a I can't tell you how many times I've said "in an answer to your query." In an answer to your query <laughs> is just a thing that comes out of my mouth all the That's time. Awesome. Um, uh, and the thing too is, you sense that this is important. Yeah, that something really serious is happening, but you don't know what that serious thing
3: is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very distressing scene. Well, let me ask you: What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of your mother? My mother. I'll tell you about my mother. Let
2: <laughs> me tell you about my mother.
3: Boom. Yeah. Yes. Shocking. Well, and it's loud. And through the wall. Yes, through the wall. Loud. Right, yeah, exactly. It is on purpose. loud, and he goes
0: through mm-hmm. the damn wall. Right. By, by the way, the actor who's doing the interview is a guy named Morgan Paul, and he oh. was... The, the guy who played Harrison Ford's parts in all the auditions. So he was the reader oh, that Ridley Scott funny. used. And after they finish all this, and he was, you know, because yeah. you're an actor, you're happy, he got to meet Ridley Scott, but it, it really said, hey, we might have something for you. Yeah, yeah, he um, was
3: uh, doing all the screen tests with like Sean Young and everything. Yeah. That's great.
0: Uh, now we get to meet Harrison Ford, we yeah. talked about as Deckard. Uh, and we get to also meet the streets of Los Angeles mm-hmm. in this Wow, which yeah. feels
1: like Tokyo, right? It feels a little like Je- like Je- Los Angeles Tokyo, right? Like what happened in Big Hero 6, San Frocio or whatever they had. <laughs> it feels thought the same playfront of
3: watching Big Hero yeah. 6 because yeah. it was, you know, the east meets the west. Exactly. And uh, you know, you're 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 he's eating Chinese food. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh Four, no, two, two, four. (laughs) I love it. And noodles, and you know, he's sitting there, he's reading the paper, and he's like looking up. He sees the 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 airship that says "Off World Colonies, a New World, Begin Again," (laughs) and uh, and then he's uh, he's interrupted by Gaff, Gaff, Edward James Olmos, yeah, who I love. He's one of my favorite
0: actors. He's a fantastic actor. And uh, what I learned is that a lot of the the city speak, all that stuff,
3: that's his. Edward James almost came up City with that speak, Oh right? wow That's, a, that's a, another language
2: Yeah He say you under arrest Mr. Decker Got the wrong guy pal He say you brain runner Tell him I'm eating
0: <laughs> well, and, and that Edward James almost said he should, he, you know, because Ridley Scott had this idea of this multicultural world, mm-hmm. which, you know, you look at Los Angeles today. It is. It is the most, I believe, most culturally diverse city on the planet. I agree. Right. Right. Um, Trump's nightmare. Yep. Um, <laughs> and... uh um, and, and so Edward James almost said he should speak some pigeon of and I think there's oh. Hungarian there's Chinese there's French there's all these different languages mm-hmm. that he's speaking and again this is where having seen the theatrical version so many times I can't not hear Harrison Ford say you know of course I understood the lingo but yeah. I wasn't I wasn't going to make this easy on him you know like yeah. I that's just in my head because I've seen it so many times right. Uh, right? so Harrison Ford goes off with Edward James almost, and we, and we got us. I think you mentioned it before Yeah, his look in this movie is spectacular yeah you know and and this goes to just a filmmaking thing in general directors out there don't make your characters neutral yeah so many students where I ask them what kind of costumes are your characters wearing and they go oh jeans and a t-shirt now I wear jeans and a t-shirt like every day (laughs) (laughs) I wear it all the time yeah but that's that's not that is a boring costume choice, right? Edward James almost in Blade Runner is not a boring cut. Co- he is a dandy. Yes. He is like every little bit of him is to the nines. Mm-hmm. And he's he's like, got a cane. he's yeah. got a cane, which which again evokes
1: the best of noir because of Maltese Falcon. Like there's there's these little subtle homages to noir that are there if you have them in your subconscious. He's hitting you on certain levels. The way the hat, the brim of the hat, everything about it just screams. Uh, uh the noir stuff that you remember from the 40s and 50s and for me personally i've always loved this idea because there's not a lot of latinos in sci-fi we don't seem to break this barrier a lot and so to know that gaff was edward james almost meant so much to me sure. growing up and because i became a huge miami vice fan as well to go back and see the movie again and again with edward james almost and of course zoot suit as well but like this is the one And make edward james about. almost
0: in zoot suit is like a miracle yeah. his performance yes. is so in- amazing Agreed. and yeah.
1: stand and deliver he's fantastic in that oh, as well yeah. but the thing with him is that there's no comment made about it he doesn't speak Spanish so you know he's Spanish it doesn't effing matter right. he is who he is his name is Gaff and he is given a he is given very little screen time but he makes the most out
3: of it I, as an actor I, 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 would in, in fact a guys he makes so much of his his screen time yeah. his brief screen time and barely that, any lines yeah and hardly any lines but gentlemen the movie is called Blade Runner you think the movie is about Harrison Ford you think the movie is about Deckard the movie Blade Runner is about Gaff listen to this okay hold on the movie, this is a controversial right, statement wait the movie Blade Runner is about Edward James almost what now this is a comment i am making at the top of the show and we are going to revisit it at the end of the show. Listen, it's going to okay. leave you listening with that little <laughs> nugget. That's good, because I movie, actually... Blade Runner, Gaff is the Blade Runner. Wow. Let's continue, shall we? Okay, so, so, so... Uh, we go meet M.M. Walsh. You're right. M.M. Walsh, who's... But before that, the... you, you get in the spinner. Yes. Oh, in the spinner, sure. Right. You get in the spinner with Gaff, and you're hearing a lot of the sort of sound effects that you heard yes. in Alien. So, the spinner ascends the exhaust Mm -hmm. shoots out from the bottom of the spinner it lifts off and the score kicks in
4: Yeah,
3: (laughs) and you are flying above la you are seeing the the, some of the buildings look very much like the past yes most of them look very much like the future Mm -hmm. and if you look closely you could see an upright millennium falcon
1: Oh yes, yes. You can oh. see an upright, yes. lightning
3: yeah. falcon if you're looking closer in the foreground right. during that scene. Right. And Harrison Ford, you know, uh, Deckard is eating his noodles yeah. along the ride, yep. and you're 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 above Los Angeles, thinking this is both beautiful and uh, menacing. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it descends. Okay, you're above Los Angeles, futuristic. Yeah. And then when you get back down to earth in the literal sense. You are in Union Station, Union Station. Yep. which is where you know the police are. Which is where we we meet uh, M- Emmett Walsh, yep. um, who's a
0: great character actor. Oh, yeah, plays a truly horrible person in this, <laughs> and he pressures Deckard into you got. I need the old magic back. You got to yeah. come back and be a Blade Runner one more Stop time. Stop right where you are. If you're not one of us, you're little people. Yeah. Um, and again, I hear the voiceover. I can hear the voiceover for that <laughs> wow. moment. So, and 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 Decker agrees. And mm-hmm. now we're going to get a briefing where we're going to replay this interview.
3: No choice, huh, pal? No choice, pal.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a horrible person. So, yeah, he's a yeah. B person. So
3: we get that interview, and it's it's so funny.
1: The interview. Uh, are different takes You can tell it's a different take Than the one they used In what we just watched Right He's more relaxed In the delivery Brian James is In the delivery Of these lines That he said before Let me mm. tell you about my mother It isn't as menacing Yeah you're right It's it also a like a are different takes Which yeah. to me speaks to something Because if we're having him voiceover It's supposed to be How Harrison Ford sees it Right If he's the voiceover He's the eyes and ears That we're supposed to be following okay. As the protagonist And so maybe that's what he sees When he's looking at this Because why If he's a replicant He won't see the evil Of Another replicant. He sees the logic of the replicant. So to me, in that moment, he is watching this interview, and he does not see the menace of Brian James. He understands Brian James's uh, uh, resistance to the questions. Now, now the original cut of the film. And that's and my it opinion. Could, no, 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 no.
3: Listen, that is an excellent, an excellent perspective, and it's not something I ever thought about. Well, I always surprise you. Scott. That yes, you definitely <laughs> always surprised me, and I am I'm a happy person for me it. Too. That's what makes me too. you. Interesting <laughs> <laughs> But in the original uh, Dialogue Yeah And M- Emmett Walsh uh, He Says that Six skin jobs Escaped right. right So Four of them You got Roy Battery You got Pris You got Zora And you got Leon Who are the other two Right Well they,
1: he says In the in extended edition That they got burnt In the
3: Whatever yeah. Electric fields or One whatever. of them got burnt In the electric yeah. field But but until the voiceover was changed for the final oh, cut... Oh,
1: interesting. Because that would be Rachel and Deckard.
3: Deckard. Oh, son of a bitch. Okay, but now now you could argue that, that okay, wow. well, he he fixed the dialogue. But right. that doesn't make sense. But, that, 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 no, that, but that
0: doesn't make sense. Because he would remember if he had escaped. But, but
3: he is a replicant. He is programmed. Sure. Mm-hmm. So maybe his programming was adjusted... And now he—they're right, using—they're a, they're using I, I, a replicant you, to hunt down the other replicants because again, <laughs> the Blade Runner in this film is Gaff. Here's why this isn't true, and I'm not trying to. Cause for, at least for I one will of prove them, you wrong, <laughs> sir. At
0: least for one of them. They had cast the uh, the fifth replicant, oh. a woman. Okay. They had written the scenes, and they ran out of money and didn't do it. So, the, okay. so it can't be Rachel. Okay. Okay, or or at least one of those two cannot be one of
3: these six. That's fair, but <laughs> but I'm just going to pose this question again, and I will I will I will revisit at the end of this broadcast. Yeah. Why is it that every single time Deckard gets rid of one of the replicants, whether it's he actually kills him or someone else kills one of the mm-hmm. replicants, like uh, you know when Leon Rachel got Cullen shot in the head, head. Gaff is there. He's always there right afterwards. He <laughs> That's always. A great point. The Calvary shows up yeah. after the fact. How, how close after? Very close how, after. Yeah. How do you know? Because you're watching the film. You see him. You're watching the film. Like after Zora yeah, right. dies, Gaff shows up. Yes. How okay? long does it take before Gaff shows up? Gaff shows up right there. Yeah. Like, you know, he goes. After, after Zora dies, uh, Decker goes to get a drink. Yes. He goes, uh, Is this okay? He goes, Yeah, I'll take it. And then. Uh, Gaff walks up right behind him and hits mm-hmm. him with the hammer. Yep, mm-hmm. That's After true. you're right. After Leon dies, well, no, after Leon dies, well, Gaff
1: was just there before,
3: right before right Leon before, dies, right, right before, before Gaff has just been right, there. Right, right. Then, Gaff was there right. with uh and, and Walsh. Right, right. Okay, so then because he, he says there's four because
1: by this point he realizes Rachel is a replicant and he says there's four. There's no, 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 there's three.
3: And then and, goes, and no, then no, no, even no. after even after Batty dies. Yeah, at the end right. of the film, there, there's the that's right, that's right. There. Shows up, <laughs> he's right there. Interesting. He's right there, and Gaff says, "You've done a man's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh?" He goes, "Finish," and that's when the whole yeah. it's too bad you won't live. But right after that massive fight with Batty, and he is beaten, bleeding, and exhausted. The spinner rises, yeah. and he gets out and says, "You've done a man's job because yeah. you are not a man; you are <laughs> a replicant." Well, that's certainly Gaff evidence that, is the Blade Runner. Well, that's
0: certainly <laughs> evidence that uh, he's a replicant. Yeah, and
3: if Whether you disagree with me, hit me up on Twitter at <laughs> Movie Man tell me that I am full of shit. All right, let's you keep are going. wrong. So we're heading off. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, now during the briefing, where Deckard is introduced to each of the four replicants. Yeah. You know, you're you're seeing the interview with Leon. Yeah. Then you see uh, Zora. I love I love uh, Emma Walsh's line. He goes,
0: "Talk about Beauty and a Beast.
3: She's both." Then you meet Pris, mm-hmm. a pleasure skin job, right. and then and then I think the last one is Batty, right? Yeah, is the yeah. last one patty? The score kicks in when he shows up. You know, he goes, uh, there's a skin, there's a There's a replicant at Terrell's. So I want you use the boy comp machine test it out make sure it works. And he goes, what if it doesn't work? And he just kind of looks at him. Mm. So then, okay, so the next scene is Deckard is going to Terrell. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful design of the exterior of that building. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the interior. Yes. Oh, gorgeous. The reveal. When the spinner lands... The inside of Terrell's office, yeah, the, this huge, massive office, the cinematography, the lighting of that scene is one of the most beautifully mm-hmm. lit scenes I have ever seen. Yeah. And it starts off with the owl flying across the room, right? and the sun is coming through the window, mm-hmm. and the sunset is very, very red because of all the pollution in the air. And... The score kicks in, and it's a beautiful score. Do you like our owl? And we're introduced... To Rachel.
1: Now, I want to say something real quick. To me, what's so interesting about this whole sequence is it's very Egyptian. Absolutely. In, it evokes Egyptian feeling, right? The the building on the outside feels like a pyramid. On the inside, it feels like those old school Egyptian yeah. throne rooms with the owl, which is a symbol of the Egyptian times as well, and the, the long table,
3: all of it, and the sunlight. And it and when the sunlight, when they put the shades oh, oh, down before the shade they do down, the down, test. And, and, you know, you have got, the, yeah. uh, the sunlight. Like uh, shining off the water And yeah. the water is yeah. uh, You know The light from the water Is going against oh, the right. wall yeah. Like I, I, God only knows how, how long it took For them to like that scene yeah. But A um, cu- couple of things I just want to jump in real fast yeah. About it being an Egyptian First
0: thing is Egyptian is very Art Deco because Art Deco is strongly influenced by the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh wow! And that's what a lot of those. If you look at Art Deco stuff, yes. a lot of it comes from that Egyptian fad. The other interesting thing about it is originally, and they didn't shoot this. They that they were going to have. Terrell is dead, and that is also a replicant. Oh. And he is living in a, his body is in a sarcophagus underneath that thing. So the whole pyramid thing <laughs> is makes perfect sense. And then they kind of dump that,
3: yeah. uh, which that, I think is what good have been by the way. interesting. Yeah. Terrell was a replicant.
0: It's all, you know, to me, it's like there's only so many times you can play this replicant card. Right. You know what I mean? It's like good not to have so yeah. many of them. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. And now we, what you said, we, we're, we're introduced to Rachel. This right. is, Sean Young is absolutely beautiful in this movie gorgeous in so many ways not just physically her character the 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 vulnerability of her character yet the steel the combination of both it makes you like it's this fantasy woman it really is because Deckard falls in love with her in literally like 45 minutes like it's literally no time at all because she is this unattainable uh un unblemished beauty and so he can transpose his ideas his thoughts on her his ideas of of this romanticism right and she is so like uh just powerful in her presence but not unac- not inaccessible, and I think that's what's so amazing. Unavailable versus inaccessible; these are two different things. And so I-, I love the way she comes in and commands the stage and says to him, "Like she's will," and she even has a smirk when he says he's going to do try. He's like, "Not me, try it on her." And she goes, "Yeah, she smirks. she
4: smirks because yeah. she thinks she's But the way she, she, she sort of challenges,
3: challenges him. him, she says,
4: "May I ask you a personal question?" Sure. Have you ever retired a human by
2: mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk.
3: And then Tyrell comes in. Yeah.
2: Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil? Involuntary dilation of the iris. We call it Voigt for short. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell
3: And the whole... Back and forth uh, You know I want to see Work on a person I want to see a Negative provider Provide you With a positive mm-hmm. uh, On you And he goes uh, Try her Yeah And, and it's, she has the spark it's too bright in here It's perfect
0: And there's a great sense Of like that She's up to the challenge Yes She's like I, she, There's no Because if someone Wanted to do some Crazy weird test on me I would still be nervous <laughs> She's not nervous nope. She's actually enjoying it It's your birthday Someone gives you A casket skin wallet
2: I wouldn't accept it Also report the person who gave it to me to the police you've got a little boy he shows you his butterfly collection plus the killing jar i take him to the doctor you're watching television suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm i'd kill it you're reading a magazine you come across a full-page nude photo of a girl is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please.
3: She gets impatient with him. Like, is this the testing to see whether, whether I'm a replicant or a, a lesbian, lesbian, Mr. Yeah. Deckard? Um, and,
0: and, of course, we go through the test, and he comes up to Tyrell after, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, Joe Turkle, by the way, that we saw in mm-hmm. The Shining, Shining yeah. um, and uh, says she's a replicant.
2: She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot on? I don't get it, Tyrone. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is?
1: Which again is the symbolism. How can it not know what it is we are always searching for who we are what's our destiny where do we belong what are we and other people from the outside sometimes can
3: see us better than we see ourselves because and we're you too give close. them you give them the memories yes she had the memories that were right. implanted
2: we began to recognize in them strange obsession after all they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and i take for granted if we gift them the past We create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently, we can control them better. Memories. You're talking
3: about memories. And uh, that's how Deckard knew about them when Rachel went to his place. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know, basically facing her quote-unquote mortality by realizing that she is a replica and she probably only has like four years. Well,
0: and this gets into what is really good sci-fi, which is what does it mean to be human? Yeah. What do our memories mean? What is consciousness? What is the value of human life? And at what point do we value it? Because at the beginning of this movie, our setup is these aren't humans. Right. You know, and at this moment, how does it not know what it is? Right. That's saying it's still not human, even though it thinks it's human. And if we go to, uh, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, that is the, that is a, We don't have really a good definition of consciousness, but that's probably the one that goes around the most. Mm -hmm. And these characters clearly think at this moment. Mm -hmm. It took over 100 questions to answer it. It does not know what it is. It's clearly thinking. So it's passing the Cartesian test, but it's not passing Deckard's test or the tests of the society at this moment.
1: And that's great you bring that up, Steve, because Pris says that. Near the end of the film, I think, therefore, I am. She says it to, to uh, so Sebastian, Sebastian or to JF De- yes, Sebastian. Sebastian. So, yeah, to JF. So, like, there, that, that's all there. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so. Then
0: one, one quick thing I want to say just about costumes, which is this oh. movie is so influential, is that Sean Young comes out in these 40s big yes. shoulder pad outfits. Yes, once again. What do we see four or five years later in the 80s in women's fashion? Like shoulder shoulder pads. Pads. Big, yeah. huge shoulder pads. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that I know that that comes from Blade Runner. Right. But it's in Blade Runner, maybe it did. Yeah, but it's and it's also
1: evocative of of these. This is with more noir films, and also her hairstyle is very forties. Well, and one of the things
0: that I know that Ridley Scott talked about is that fashion is cyclical. You know, and we know this because we saw the 70s come back in the 90s and we see the 60s come back in the 80s. And so he's looking at things and going, Mm -hmm. the 40s are back. Yeah. You know, and that's part of what's happening within this film. So uh, this is a detective story. And so we go off. uh, We we have that key piece of information we get in the interview, Mm -hmm. which is the address. And we go back to where Leon lived. Um, And by the way, this is shot as a pickup. That's not Harrison Ford's arm reaching into that bathtub. Right. It is, in fact, Morgan Paul, our guy who kind of looks like Harrison Ford, who oh, is our guy funny. who is uh, doing the interview at the beginning of the movie. Yes. And the name yeah. of the
1: place is the Yukon, right? Isn't that the name of the place they go to? The ho- yeah, I the think hotel. So. The place he stays. Yeah. Okay, I looked this up. The symbolism of a Yukon. It holds the earliest evidence of the presence of human occupation in North America. And I thought this was a perfect thing to use wow. because it is this idea of... Human occupation, this idea of the replicants are the first generation of this type of huge slash human slash yeah. cyborg, whatever you want to call it, you know, and right. in fact, even the opening scrawl, which we haven't talked about yet. I love that replicant is in red. I love oh, yeah. that idea because in in most in most of the study Bibles, Jesus Christ's words are in red. And this mm. idea of sacrifice for the greater sacrifice wow. for the better. So there's so much about here that could be read into it. And maybe I'm way off base and really yeah, would laugh at me right now. Yeah. But like this idea of the Yukon makes sense to me as well to call it that. This
3: idea of the beginning, this first first creation of the first generation. It. So love it, yeah. So, and, we're, so, so we're so we're at Leon's apartment, yes. and Leon was going to go back there because he wanted right. to get his precious Pictures. photos. Right, yeah. and uh, we get the snake scale from the bathtub. Yes, yep. and we also see uh, the second time that Gaff does an origami. Right.
0: Yep. And this becomes a key thing. These mm-hmm. origami, beautiful character point. It's going to be a plant and a payoff. The later dude with a large penis. Yes, and the mm. first
1: time it's a chicken because De- Deckard is initially refusing to do it, which is why he does the chicken. The second is large penis because Deckard is, you know, he's becoming this, he's embracing this idea of going after it. Yeah,
0: um, I never thought about that. That's <laughs> really? Great. No, no, oh, I never okay. thought that. That's awesome. Okay, um, uh, so we're gonna go. We, we, uh, Leon goes and meets Roy. Mm-hmm. We meet Rutger Hauer for the first time. Oh,
3: man. Time enough. <laughs> R- you see Hauer. the hand. You see the hand <laughs> clenching because he's dying. Yes. Because that's what happens at the end of the film. You know, he yeah. he pushes the nail through his hand to keep it alive. Yeah. But he's in the phone booth and he, he his hand clenches like time enough. Like this is it. He's on his last yeah. he's on his last breath. Yeah. You know, gets out, says to you get your photos, and he goes, No, someone was there. Was it a man? A man? Oh. And he shakes his head and he goes, Police man <laughs> and then they walk off and it's a, again beautiful it's shot you yeah. have the the, the, the the glowing graffiti of the uh, the Japanese yeah. and the, uh, the, 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 the the cans on fire and the the bikers go by right. and they go to I just do eyes
2: morphology longevity dates. don't know I, I
0: don't know such stuff I just do eyes. Just
2: just eyes. Genetic design. Just eyes. You Nexus, huh?
0: I design your eyes. James Hong. I just do eyes. I love him. And part, I can't. It's like Big Trouble in Little China is such a big movie for me, and he is so great. And he's just one of these great iconic actors. Yes that you see in all sorts of movies you love. He's, and, he's great in the scene.
1: And he looks the same age. It's <laughs> like Max von Sydow. He has been 70 years old since the first time I've seen him. Yeah, he until always, old. He, he yeah. Like always
0: looked Martin. old.
3: like Steve Martin. Steve has always yeah. looked like an old man. That's yes, right. Yeah.
0: And this great was really stuff. shot in a uh, cold storage place. Oh, wow. Yeah. It is really cold. They had major problems with lights. The lights were smoking. The actress couldn't mm. breathe. And again, Ridley, not nice to his actors. <laughs> he, he doesn't really care. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty brutal shoot, but the scene is great. <laughs> And and you know, yeah. Roy is a great, great bad guy. Man. Questions. I don't know answers. Who
2: does? Tyro.
3: Yes. It, he's one of the great bad guys and definitely the best character that Rucker Hauer has ever played. Absolutely.
1: And not but Better, than <laughs> Better than Blind
3: Fury? Better than Blind Fury. What? Yes.
1: Okay. He's he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's trying to live. He's trying to figure out how to live. To him, but when he obviously when he kills Terrell, that's you can you, you can see what feeling you feel about that. But he's trying to find out. They used them as slaves. They created them to be slaves, right? He says this at the end of the film: "Live in fear. This is what it's like to be a slave." You know. And so this is. I don't see him necessarily as a bad guy. And when I was younger, absolutely. But as I'm older now, I see what he's trying to do. I understand his logic. Is he doing it the right way? No, because he's torturing people. He's hurting people. What he does to James Hong in that scene makes him freeze to death to give him the information so there's he has because he doesn't have time to be nice or to be to take his like he has to be ruthless by know? the way
0: i couldn't agree more and as soon yeah. as i said bad guy i didn't like the fact okay. that i said it and and slight spoiler alert i have my own theory that we're going to get to at the end oh, of this great. film cool. well let's um, get to so it. Yeah. so okay so uh we get a little bit more information we find out about this name jf sebastian yeah that's the guy to get to tyrell mm-hmm. and then we go back to deckard who goes home to his fascinatingly designed apartment yes. and very tall uh yeah,
3: <laughs> number ninety-seven. He's on
0: the 97th, 97th floor, floor. <laughs> yeah. and uh, and goes in, and who's waiting for him in his apartment? But
3: Rachel. Who's Rachel. waiting for him in the elevator? Yeah, Is Rachel, and she he pulls See, the, the door gun. As he takes out his blaster, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then and then listen, you know, she she's now on to the fact yes. that that she's a replicant. You think I'm a replicant, don't you?
2: Remember when you were six? You and your brother snuck into an empty building through a basement window. You were gonna play doctor. He showed you his, and when it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? You ever tell anybody that? Your mother, Tyrell, anybody? Huh? You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched.
4: The egg hatched. And? And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her.
2: Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're
0: somebody else's. They're Tyrell's
3: nieces, and he's like being totally insensitive, and he like—it is so horrible yes. what he does to her in this yeah. moment.
0: He's very callous. It is completely unfeeling. Yeah. Which part of me, by the way, goes maybe—and that's evidence that he's a replicant. Well maybe no human empathy here at all
1: no but it but it's very evocative of noir stuff Humphrey Bogart is very callous in all the films he's in right with all the women that he interacts with and later on he physically pushes her against the wall which we'll get to that scene at some point but like this is his this is a very noir approach to the situation it's unknowingly callous he isn't malicious on purpose he catches himself when he realizes what he says and she storms out and that's why he calls her from the bar when he goes to see Zora he's trying to apologize in his ham-handed way it's
3: not my kind of place
1: right and she's trying she's she lets him in a little bit and the, so but he's very callous. you're right
3: it's brutal yeah like, but then he scene. you know he shows remorse he's like you know you want a drink and he goes to get her a drink and she's you know yes. but like, when he comes back she's out the door yeah. so you know uh and, and while all this is uh going on the back and forth between deckard and rachel you hear rachel's theme for the first time. yes theme. rachel's break, theme yeah. the beautiful score yeah. Uh, uh, and and it's uh, something that, that happens, you know, later in the film, yeah. uh, that beautiful piano yeah. score. It's just so gorgeous. And then, and then, listen, now we finally meet Pris and J.F. Sebastian. Right. It's a outside, great intro. Yeah. Out, right outside mm-hmm. the Bradbury building, which is a... A Los Angeles landmark. Yeah. And I, when I first moved to LA, one of the first things I did was I got to see the Bradbury building (laughs) at Third and Broadway downtown. And you walk in that building and it looks just like Blade Runner. (laughs) It's still. I disagree.
0: I think it looks, I think it's gorgeous and I think you should visit it and go walk in and look. But it looks amazing, but it is beautiful and pristine and clean. So, so it doesn't look like Blade Runner to me. I know that it's the same building because the way that Blade Runner is dressed yeah. is so gritty and dark mm. and wet and messy and grungy and old. And the Bradbury building is beautifully preserved.
3: But if you take away the rain, if you take away the moody lighting, yeah, then... That's the Bradbury building. Yeah. It sure. doesn't look like, even if you, even with all that lighting to accentuate the scene, like you talk about the backlots of Warner Brothers, yeah. how you look at the backlot now, you're like, oh, there's like, I can't believe they shot Blade Runner here. But as soon as you walk into the Bradbury building, it looks looks just like it. Well, not just like it, but enough like it because they didn't have to do much to change the Mm -hmm. look of the building. The actual architecture,
0: it's remarkable architecture. It's kind of an anomaly architecturally, is my understanding. It doesn't look like any other building in Los Angeles. It's very much its own thing built by an architect that didn't do a lot of other stuff. Um, And one thing that I just found out is... That people were working in the building when they were shooting, and so every single night they shot all nights. They had to clean everything out and make it perfect so people could come and work and redress. Oh so then they start shooting. I don't know how you could possibly. Yeah, they do shot that. at night. You know, they That's would madness. they would
3: put the water everywhere and the lighting, yeah. and then have everything like. Brand spanking new in time for the next morning when people will come in to go right. to work. How awesome would that be to go to work at the Bradbury building Yeah, <laughs> That would be awesome. So so then what,
1: what happens next now? We go well, into-
0: well we meet so we meet uh, so we have yeah. Daryl Hannah and JF Sebastian, William Sanderson. Right. Their relationship is really kind of sweet and mm-hmm. lovely and uh, we get well, some she's
3: using him. Right. She is using. She it. is, and she's oh, been no question planted by. When, when they meet outside, he's like, "Say, no, oh, you want to come in? Yeah, you know." And she's like, oh. "He's like, she's like, oh, I don't have any place to go. Whatever, right. I'm really hungry." Right. And he goes, "Oh, you want to come up?" And 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 when when uh, Sebastian turns her back on Priss to sort of lead the way, the look yeah. that Priss gives him, yeah. she is using him. Yep. She's true. taking advantage of it's him. true, right. absolutely. Yeah. And one of
0: my questions is because so is how at what point does JF Sebastian recognize? That these are Nexus Six, or that these are when replicants. Batty shows up. Yeah, when Batty shows when up. Batty Batty shows up. But when they yeah. go
3: up to Sebastian's apartment, right. you know she is playing into him because you know she's very pretty, she's mm-hmm. young, and they go up to his apartment, and you realize that he's like this lonely guy right. who lives with his toys. Good evening, JF. Home yeah. again, home again. jiggity jig. <laughs> you know, and then all the you know the real actors. Yeah, real actors, not animatronics, not special effects, real actors. Uh, uh little people made up mm-hmm. to walk around like they're toys mm-hmm. and or mannequins right you know some of them are mannequins but but it's uh again all the lighting in sebastian's apartment is gorgeous yeah, gorgeous
0: yep. absolutely gorgeous yep. um we have a unicorn dream depending on what version you okay. watch yes. now
3: we're, we're talking about the final cut and the final cut version of the unicorn dream the unicorn dream is a little longer than it was in the director's cut. Right. So this is where, this is the scene that firmly establishes more than any other scene in the film because of the way it, it, it ties to the end that Deckard is a replicant. Mm. Now, you have Deckard hunched over the piano, playing the piano, just sort of out of it, having a daydream. And then you hear the, the music swells and you see the unicorn... And and in the final cut, there's a close-up of Harrison Ford where he's just kind of like out of it, like like not completely, mm-hmm. like like there's a glitch in right. it. Okay, now he's has a dream of a unicorn, the last origami, yes, that's outside of his apartment. Yes, when he escapes with Rachel. Yes, is a unicorn, a silver unicorn. Yes. So, how did Gaff? No. <laughs> what Deckard was dreaming Oh. because the dream is on file because he is a replicant Damn. because Gaff is the Blade Runner this great. of this story. You're son of a bitch. Well, this is first great.
0: of all, there's no question that the unicorn is evidence or is used as evidence. These replicant, right? Whether or not that means Gaff is the Blade Runner. I don't know. Clearly, Gaff, Gaff is on the job. <laughs> he's the Blade Runner. Because <laughs> well, right.
1: he could have left the unicorn there in a symbol of Rachel. Because in a way, when he says, it's a shame she won't live, he remembers that in that moment. It's uh, Gaff letting her live. He, he, he could have taken her
0: out. He has every right to take it's Rachel too bad. out. she won't live. Right. It's too bad but she won't again, live. She but does. then again, who does? Which is great. But, and by the yeah. way, clearly he's not a very good Blade Runner. If the Blade the Purpose definition of a Blade Runner is Mm -hmm. someone who kills replicants. His his main action is to not kill anybody.
3: But but that's because but that's because he was letting the replicant do his dirty work for him. Yep. And he lets him live. He lets him live because he's done a man's job. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'm fine with it. Uh, One thing I want to bring up because we're talking about this unicorn thing is, and this is what we can't know is. I that's very thin storytelling. That is the main evidence Ooh. of of Deckard being a replicant. He has a dream about a unicorn. At the end of the movie, someone makes a, a unicorn. And what I really wonder, and I, because when I went to see the director's cut, yeah. I had heard articles in Entertainment Weekly or whatever, oh, in this version, Deckard's a replicant. So I And I had already seen the movie over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I can't see that movie in fresh eyes and go, uh, is the storytelling clear enough that, would hundred percent of the audience walk out of that go, "Hey, that guy's a replicant because of the unicorn thing i right. don 't think so no, I, think, I think that's very thin and I think and it's not a criticism it's just you know sometimes when you 're making a film, there's some things you absolutely need hundred percent of the audience to understand to right. understand the film, and there are other things where eighty percent of the audience understands, and there's some things where maybe 20% of the audience goes, oh, you know, I think that uh, he's actually a replicant yeah. because did you notice that? And then people start talking and that's right. okay. And to me, this seems like something that's on a pretty low percentage of if people knew nothing about the film before they saw it. Mm-hmm. Like how, what percentage of people would actually walk out right after it and go, he's a replicant,
3: you know? But you see, I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, the it's not a that, criticism. that it was, yeah.
3: that, that even, even after the director's cut came out and the Dream sequence was included, I still think that it's uh, it's a it's a great thing yeah. that when it's so subtle that people pick up on it yeah. and that it goes well, even the, the nineteen ninety two version of of going viral. Yeah. Which meant that it was that's, just like in magazines yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah. like that. Because
0: I remember here I remember a friend of mine handed me an article or something. Yeah. You know, before the internet, it's exactly what it did. It went nineteen ninety two viral. Yeah. And it went, Oh shit. Yeah. I and, but you
3: see that and yeah. that's the beauty of it, that even when the when the final cut came out in two thousand seven I interviewed ridley scott and uh definitely it was a bucket list interview because it was for blade runner wow and he had to put his leg up on a chair and put ice on it because he sprained his ankle playing tennis (laughs) that's what i remember about it but he was super super nice so we're talking about the film so i asked him point blank all right yes or no is deckard a replicant he goes what do you think i said. Yes, he is. He goes. Why do you think that? And I said, "Well, the dream sequence, the unicorn, the origami of the unicorn. It, it just, it, it has. He has to be a replicant." He goes, "You're right." Well, there you go. He said, "You're right." Now what I didn't ask him was if Gaff was the real Blade <laughs> But I wish I well, did when you do, next time. Yeah, when yeah. you do
0: the, the interview with him after the super final this is really the last <laughs> the time last cut. cut. Yeah, yeah. Then the you final, can ask that final coming. cut. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> yeah. so uh, now we have one of the a scene that just stuck with me forever, which yeah. is enhanced section three oh seven. Yeah. Oh I love this. I mean, this is such a geeky thing. And of course we live in the world where we're doing that by spreading our pinching and zooming
3: now. It is it is forensics. Uh, by way of Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. it's yep. uh. Yeah. You're right. I didn't. I didn't equate it with like you know. You know. Yeah. You know, spreading the thing on your phone and. Right. Uh, but that's what it is. It's uh. You're you're doing forensic evidence, just through pictures. You know. Yeah. Uh. Zoom. No. Pull back. Uh. Go to the right. Uh. Three three six. Uh, stop. Zoom in there. Uh. Pull back. Uh, three eighty six. I mean, it's like it's what? so cool. Yeah. And,
0: and it's funny. I. I I, one of the things you have to do when you're doing science fiction is you have to imagine the future. Yeah. So you have to try to figure out what is science going to come up with? How is the world going to work? And there's a great quote I always love from Walt Disney, which is what they're making Disneyland. And he says, really, we should call Tomorrowland Yesterdayland, hmm. Because whatever we imagine is the future is always the 1967 version of the future. Yeah. It actually becomes the past really fast. And this is one I was thinking about. I was like, this is 1982. We, no one's seen a mouse or almost no yeah. one has seen a mouse on a computer. And here we are in 2017 and we're two years before this movie is supposed to take place. And what's our new technology we're using all the time? Voice recognition. Right? Yeah. You right. know, we're Siri. actually going into Siri and Alexa and all yeah. those things.
1: Even FaceTiming.
0: Face-time, We're doing yeah. now
1: as you would he uh, when he calls Rachel from the bar. That's Absolutely. face that's essentially FaceTiming. Yeah. Yeah. Star Trek did that in
0: 1966. Yeah. Yes, right. We, we also take a look. He's got this scale. He takes this scale down to this woman in this great scene to try to figure out who made this scale. Is it yes. a fish? No, snake. Oh, right. And that leads us off to the snake guy, yeah. and that leads us off to Zora. Yeah. Okay,
3: well, well, you're the scene and the market. You know, this is downtown LA. Yeah. Uh, it, is, it is called Animoid Row. Because in the beginning of the film, or, or when he meets Rachel, when Deckard meets Rachel, the uh, owl is not real. Right. So even though this was not established in the narrative of the film, when Deckard is going around the market, he's looking for the vendor who designed the snake. The snake isn't real either. You think right. I could afford a real snake? Yeah. And you see the ostrich walk by him. These are all animoids. They're all right. like, animal versions of replicants. Right. I don't know why, maybe global warming. Who the hell knows? Right. It's raining in Los Angeles. Now, it rains a lot this year in Los Angeles, yeah. but normally it never rains here. Mm-hmm. And you're watching a film about the future of LA where it rains all the time. Yeah.
0: Well, this is also, it's a weird noir thing because in, in classic noir, most of which is in yeah. LA, it people rains. are always in these trench coats. Yeah. It's always mm-hmm. like, nobody's wearing short sleeve shirts. in the uh, Yeah, like the, the vision of what noir LA yeah. is. Is not what I'm looking, seeing out the window right now.
1: Well, this and this whole bar sequence is so great. The whole, the, the whole scene. You know, and once again, it's him trying to apologize to Rachel. You know, he, that weird guy is like he looks a little thirsty, giving somebody a house. All that's very noirish. And then the thought with Rachel, and then he plays this character trying to get through Zora's defenses. Right?
2: Excuse me, Miss Salome. Can I talk to you for a minute? I'm from the American Federation of Variety Artists. Oh yeah. I'm not here to make you join. No, ma'am. That's not my department. Actually, uh, I'm from the uh, Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses.
1: He ends up in her in her uh, uh, dressing room, you know, and his voice changes. Like initially he's like, hey, I'm from the social, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually he does this blinking thing where his voice comes back to normal. And, th- and then Joanna Cassidy, it, great Joanna Cassidy, you know, she does this whole sequence, does the shower, her hair into the, bl- yeah, all of brought, that is just, her and her the hair, music yeah. is hitting, the, the the synthesizer music is hitting. And then she comes out and puts on this like almost futuristic Barbarella type top with the, with the plastic uh, jacket and you know hits him in the ribs and whatever She's onto him. when is she on to him is my sequence and i watched it twice this or three times this scene today when is she on to him because you
3: never see her go Wait a minute. There's yeah, not a moment. You, there actually is a quick moment. Oh, there moment. is. Okay. There's a quick moment. Like, you know, when he goes, he's on from the committee of moral abuses. Right. Moral right. abuses? You know, have you ever felt yourself to be uh, taken advantage of it anyway? You know, <laughs> he's like that. having this dialogue with her. Yeah. And she's answering his questions thinking because he changed his voice, he sounds like an idiot. Right. But then, uh, you know, he says, like, you ever had a problem with like holes? He goes, holes. And 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 this is after she's both dry her hair and she's starting to get dressed. Yeah. And she's like drying herself off. You see her like. Like sort of take a look back at him, Ah, like like she doesn't turn around and face him, but she's something is wrong. Right, like she gets that something is wrong, and then she like you know hits him in the face and starts choking him with his tie. Right, and then she gets out of there and he goes after her. She gets disrupted. All all the you know that when they're when they're running down the street, when they're running down and like all the the crowds. And the crowds of misfits, and they're all dressed so differently, and and the chaos, and there's no music during this right. moment because all you're hearing are the people and and the uh, the the cross now, yeah. cross now, cross yeah, now, yeah. Right. And and you know he he can't really fire at her without hitting mm-hmm. someone else until he finally gets to a point where he's he's got her in his sights. He's yeah. like, move, get out of the way, and and she's running away, and he, and she, he's finally. Because this is the first time that he really on his own kills a replica. Yes. Because uh you know, like like that was really the moment when he was when she was running through and he hits her yeah. and she's running through the glass and then she 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 dies and it's a great scene Yeah, it's a great like winter scene too almost yeah. because of the sequences that are
1: happening here right it was uh, to me it evoked the Oranishi scene in Kill Bill when they have that fight and she, after she strikes that last blow the bride does her slow descent onto the floor it's very reminiscent of that because it's done in slow motion obviously in Blade Runner but once again it's this idea of this coldness this kind of like you know this this aloof this distance you know and you see it happening here in the, in the death scene so and then he has the sequence you know he has this so like I'm Deckard I'm a blade, and uh, Leon is we see Leon watching this whole thing so we see Leon watching Pris get killed by Deckard well, well right? and it's then...
3: a it's, uh, 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 Zora 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 Zora, Zora, so, Zora, so, Zora get so, killed so by so Deckard so Joanna Cassidy but Leon is watching now in the original cut and the director's cut the scene was shot with a stunt woman and oh, when yeah. the stunt woman is running through and, and gets shot and, and breaks through the glass it is obviously a woman in a wig it is obviously yeah. a stunt person. So, for the final cut in 2007, they went back, reshot the scene. What? They t- they, they reshot the scene with Joanna Cassidy. What? For the 2007 final cut version of Blade Runner, what? they they recreated the entire scene with the glass and the lighting, and so jo- Joanna Cassidy who looked amazing. I mean, you know, they touched it up with a little right. CGI on the face because she does look a little older. But compare the director's cut with the final That's cut. amazing. Watch both of those scenes. Okay. And like when I saw it in the theater, people were cheering and clapping because the shot... Matched perfectly because yeah. it was clearly Joanna Cassidy, the one she was, she that was really her going <laughs> through amazing. the glass dying. That was a forgiveness I always made about the film. Like, okay, yeah, I could tell it's a stunt
1: person. I well, don't care. It's Watch still a good the film.
3: final cut now. I will. That I is have a
1: Blu ray disc thing that came yeah, a, out, so that's I will a have a nice watch uh,
0: that. And, and so, um, at yeah. this moment, this is the moment I think where the film is shows how unique it is, mm-hmm. which is we've had our hero ostensibly. Kill one of the people he's been after, and you don't feel good. It yeah. is a sad, yeah. uh, hard, confusing, emotionally moment. It's a very—it's fraught with a lot of stuff. Why? Because Zora didn't do anything. Zora hasn't done anything
3: but dance. She is a replicant, a right? She is a killer. So well, why is Deckard showing remorse over having just killed her? Oh, the I Ra- oh yeah. It. Oh, you're because saying because he's a replicant? He is. A. You can't
0: think of any other reason why
3: one might sh- show remorse about shooting someone well, in the back? Well, <laughs> in this case, in this case, he was doing his job. Yeah. He was doing his job. But sure. why is he showing remorse? You can't think of remorse? any reason
0: why somebody who was doing their job that involved a horrible thing might feel remorse but over that? But he
3: wasn't showing remorse at all with really anybody up to this point. Mm. So why is he showing remorse over somebody that he was assigned to kill, someone he did not know? Because... Yeah. Is a replicant.
0: So your only reason that someone might feel remorse for someone else is that no, they're of the same. He's not saying no, someone, no. He's no, saying I, Deckard. I, See, saying I think in that this case, I, I don't think that. Okay, that's... what's your theory? What's my theory? What's, uh, what, what's your
3: thought? Like, why, why is he showing remorse in this yeah. scene? Why is, why is, why is, why is Deckard, Deckard o- showing o- why remorse? Why is he standing over her? So, so, so why does he feel bad? And in a sense, why does the audience feel bad? Well, because they're humans. Who's I, Who's human? Deckard. I don't buy that.
0: Because because they have souls because they look like humans because they have thoughts emotions and feelings i mean that's what this whole movie's about is what is the identity of these characters are but, they but are they machines that he, have no this value is such a cold or do they character. have life value
3: deckard is such a cold mm. emotionless oh, I character agree. okay well, and, and, so and this is the first time he has he has had to this is the first um, one of only two times yeah. where he actually was the one who killed a replicant because the other two died by different means yeah. right you know one racial shot and yep. then batty just died on his own accord right but he didn't know zora yeah he didn't have time to get to know her right to feel bad because she was she, he killed her he felt bad because he is a replicant because that's certainly possible he is not the blade runner i think
1: both your theories are possible he could it could be feel bad because it's a human situation and emotions and killing but it's a because he's a replicant and killing her and the first time he kills an actual replicant there's a new feeling inside him that he can't quite process. Let me ask
0: you, let me ask you this question. Do you, think that, uh, <laughs> do you think that killing the replicants is a cool thing to do?
3: Well, knowing what I know about the replicants, knowing the, how they were, they, 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 because they were conscious and they were aware of their mortality and they had memories whether they were implanted or not, and they were implanted, they were human. I know that because I've seen the movie a hundred times. Well, yeah. and,
0: and so so maybe if you first discover this by meeting Rachel, and then you do feel some remorse for being mean to her, which he is, and then you have a couple of other experiences, you don't think that's enough of a reason for a human All to maybe start to feel remorse. Possibly. Why are you trying I mean,
1: to die on this mountain? I don't understand. Both your theories can work. Well, I, I, you're trying to make him. You're trying to convince him. No,
0: I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that in its of itself is not great evidence for him being a replicant because there's a perfectly human explanation for why someone might feel remorse.
3: Well, uh, again, in any other film and any other story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, some people... Some I mean, people... he
0: is a replicant, you know, based on... You know, I think the the movie pushes it
3: that way. And by the okay. way, we'll find out if he's a replicant for sure in Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> 20, yeah. October 2049. Um, well, he's still alive. Yeah, so he's maybe still he alive, isn't. you yeah. know, four-year so lifespan. I
0: think that Harrison Ford is one of the greatest... Actors has the greatest getting beat up skill of any actor I can think Absolutely. of. Absolutely. He knows how to get his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. And he gets his ass kicked repeatedly, particularly as Indiana Jones. But yeah. man, him get beat up by Leon. Oof. Brutal. The slap, the slow slaps are yeah. fantastic.
1: But once again, it is it's uh what you do to someone who is lesser than you. For lack of a better phrase, treating someone like a bitch. And that's what he does. He goes, that,
3: that scene with Leon. Psh-t. It's so good. My birthday is April 10, 2017. How long do I live? Four years. He goes, wake up. Time to die. It's so great. It's such a great scene. Yeah. And he's rescued by Rachel.
0: Yes. Rachel uh,
3: shoots Leon in the head. In the head. So which means she had thoughts, had second thoughts about coming down
1: to meet him cuz she was she's there in that area right there. I think she's coming to meet him at the bar or oh, she's yeah. coming to meet him she yeah, follows, she, uh,
0: or she I, follows
3: him to that sequence I, I, it's with It's the with, only
0: reason that she yeah, could be there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we go back to the apartment. I love the blood in the shot yeah. glass. Okay. So oh, great. let's talk
3: about that scene. Okay. So the back in Decker's apartment yes. after like you said Decker got the crap kicked out of him. Yeah. So he he takes a little swig from the shot glass and the blood. It's great that you know, the the, the, the suckback goes back into the glass, and you yeah. see the blood in there. And Rachel—it's Harrison Ford's idea, by the way. Yeah, yeah, oh, Harrison great. Ford. Right. Yeah. So, but Rachel is standing there, and, and uh, he goes, uh, "Shakes." Me too.
2: I get them bad.
3: It's part of the business.
4: I'm not in the business. I am the business.
3: Yeah, that's Fantastic so great. Line. Fantastic, it's great line. And so, all right, guys, this is <laughs> Scott, Scott Mann stood, stood up. One up. hour, he's pacing. We back are the now board. past the halfway point of Blade Runner. Yeah, we only have. We are past <laughs> the midpoint of this minutes. film yeah. when Leon gets shot in the head. You know, we talked about how <laughs> Blade Runner, uh, maybe the Blade Runner is not Deckard, maybe the Blade Runner is Gaff. We talked about, okay, the unicorn establishes that he is probably a replicant. We have uh, talked about why, why does he show remorse standing over Zora's body. Exhibit C <laughs> in the case for Rick Deckard being a replicant yeah. is this. So Deckard takes off his shirt, puts his head in the sink, yeah. in the ice. You know, He's rinsing out his mouth, and the blood is dripping out of his mouth. Rachel says to him, What if I go north? Will you come after me? Hunt me. So Deckard's drying off his drying off himself with a towel. He right. goes, No. Right. I owe you one. But then in the next next very next scene, Deckard says, but somebody would. Yeah. Now at that moment, at one hour and eight minutes into the film, <laughs> what he says, but somebody would. Okay. What is another sign? That someone is a replicant. Their eyes glow. We saw the owl's uh, eyes glow. Uh, yeah. Good point, yeah. Okay, we saw the owl's eyes glow. We saw Rachel's eyes yep. glow when she was being interviewed for the voight test.
4: Oh, interesting. And
3: now, at one hour and eight minutes into the film, <laughs> when Deckard walks behind Rachel and says, but somebody would, he's out of focus, but clearly you see his eyes are glowing. Interesting. Go home. Put on your yeah. Blu-ray. No, you're right. One yep. hour and eight okay. minutes. Great Everybody yep. listening, stop the podcast right now. Put on your Blu-ray. Advance to one hour and eight minutes. And this scene, you will see there Deckard's eyes glowing. He is a replicant. Okay. He is not the Blade Runner. Gaff is. Okay. All great, right. Great point. Thank point. you, gentlemen. Right.
0: So we get into this love scene, which now part of this is my 2017 eyes looking at this thing. But yeah, and part of it is stories I've heard about behind the scenes of how this was shot. Um, It's pretty rapey. Oh. Uh, Okay It's pretty pushy I don't Well sure it's pushy But
1: it's also noirish This is what This is how it was In the noir stuff It evokes that noir feeling He's a man He's a little more Of a brutish man But when he pushes her She is running He is trying to make Her face something And she ran last time And he's not gonna Let her run again She ran last time Because he was horrible to her. Well sure fair But like he's trying To make her face this Right And in this moment He shuts the door Like this What's he trying To make her face Before that that,
3: You know just establish the fact that that he's showing more remorse for her and she's starting to feel her for feelings him. after he's lying on the couch and he's got the drink on his chest yeah, yeah. you know she starts playing the piano yeah and he sits next to her and he goes you know i dreamt music and she's like i, I thought i had lessons you know maybe they're just yeah. memories and he goes you play beautifully yeah and then the angry yeah
1: but she's running from her feelings for it and he's not going to let her run from his feeling, from her me. feelings for him, and so she shuts the door. And you may not like it, but this happens. This has happened. I have had this experience. This happens. Sometimes you have a moment where you have to make someone face something, and they you grab them, you grab them and they face it, and and it's there. I'm not saying you need to physically abuse anybody, but man, women relations are not black and white. In no fucking way are they black and white. So some moments. There are moments where you have to do something. I'm sure in any relationship you've had moments you have to be, no, listen to me. There is a situation. So that happens. What he's saying to her in essence is no, listen to me. And he and he no what and, he's saying
0: he, in essence is kiss me.
1: That's your right. opinion. No, that's what happens in the scene. No, but I'm saying what he's saying to her underneath the words. Yeah, like
3: figuratively. He's yes, saying figuratively this, because this, yeah. because,
1: so, because when he pushes her against the wall, he realizes he's gone too far. Because he does, he puts his hands out in a way like, yeah, yeah, of like I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, like, he puts yeah. his hands out in a way of I'm sorry, and then he approaches her slowly. He does it because he realizes he's pushed a bit too far, and he pulls back, and she lets him pull back, and Say, that's the kiss thing. Me, kiss yeah. me, yeah. They meet yeah. each other as equals in that moment. I think because she was above him in the beginning and she is slowly coming down and he's coming up and in that moment where they have the physical, somewhat slight physical altercation, it is where there are equals and he reproaches her and he says, tell me you to kiss me, tell me to get and she finally gives in and says, put your hands on my body. This is her giving in because she's been resisting for so long
0: and so it's, there's a, no it's an question. There's no question that that is what happens mm-hmm. in the scene. Um, two things I'll say about it. The first thing is that uh, she is at her lowest emotional place I have three things to say. Okay. One, she's at her lowest and most vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. Um, her whole life has been destroyed. Um, mm-hmm. um, second thing is that she is a, literally has just discovered that she is a, of a species of servitude. Sure, you know, and so that she is actually has no agency over of her life. Right. And and remember, when Deckard first met her, he called her an it. And the second time he met her. He treated her like an it. And what is this guy now doing? He's ordering her what to do. He's also... Not- Here's the third thing I'll okay, say. Okay, sure. Here's the third thing I'll say. Sure. Ridley Scott did told Harrison Ford to slam her against the wall. Didn't ah. tell Sean Young.
1: Oh, that's not
0: good. Um, She burst into tears and was crying. Oh. And Harrison Ford mooned her, ostensibly to make her laugh. Now... Now And this is the thing. It's like, is the filmmaking the film? No. Does the scene work in the film? Yeah, it did. Yes. Did, did it bother me 10 years ago watching it? No. I, did, I interpreted it just as you've mm-hmm. interpreted mm-hmm. Now I have that story in my head, and that's a little bit in my head. And okay. I also think that's about you know, w- that women, partic- women actresses are frequently put in situations <laughs> in Hollywood where they are pushed into doing things that they are uncomfortable with. Absolutely. And that that is wrong. Now, does that have anything to do with Deckard and Rachel within the scene? Nothing whatsoever. But mm-hmm. it did. But I did go like eh, well, watching it this time, and that's a fair perspective yeah, to have. I mean, absolutely, Steve, you know, to put it's that 2017, in twenty seventeen. Yeah, of so, course. But
1: he's also in another way, Steve. He keeps her from leaving because there's two crazy replicants out there, and she has just killed one of their friends. That's
0: perfectly good point. So
1: that's another reason he kind of like wants to keep her there too. I yeah. would
0: think. All right, Roy goes and meets JF Sebastian. Yes, and there's very odd in that relationship between priss and jf and roy
3: jf knows instantly that he's in trouble too yeah yeah because you know when priss was there you know priss has this like innocence even though she was using him Yeah. but when when batty shows up sebastian gets scared yeah hi roy gosh really got some nice toys here
4: this is the friend i was telling you about
2: this is my savior, J.F. Sebastian. Sebastian. I like a man that stays put. You live here all by yourself, do you?
3: Yes. He gets scared. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The menace, you can man. tell that he is scared. And, uh, you know, Batty is just like, you know, Zora's gone. Liana's gone. Right. And it's just us now. And they're trying to tell Sebastian to take... to. Take me to your leader. Right. Is he good? Who?
2: Your opponent. Oh, Dr. Terrell. I've only beaten him once in chess. He's a genius. He designed you. Maybe he could help. I'd be happy to mention it to him. Better if I talked to him in person. But I understand he's a sort of hard man to get to. Yes.
3: will you help us i can't
4: we need you sebastian you're our best and only friend
3: they're trying to butter him up he's you know batty's trying to make him laugh with like the eyes we're so glad you found us right and sebastian is nervous laughing he's scared of batty yeah. And
0: fascinated, too. Yeah. Like, he's scared and fascinated, I think. And we're going, how are we going to get in to see Tyrell? And the answer is this chess game.
3: Yeah. Uh, we show up at Tyrell's, wake him up, give him the chess move. Of course, you know, uh, Tyrell thinks that Sebastian is by himself. Right. Because they're playing chess. Right. And he goes, oh, milk and cookies kept you awake, huh, Sebastian? <laughs> yeah, I think you better come up here. So he lets Sebastian in. Tyrell comes down in his bathrobe. But he sees Sebastian, and he sees Batty. And Tyrell, of course, knows instantly. Tyrell gets scared. Right. Like, oh, shit.
1: It's a great acting moment, because he has a slight hesitation putting on the robe or wrapping the robe, tying the... the He's thing tying the robe, the robe then, he looks down. Yeah, and then he looks down. And then he adjusts his tactics. And this is what he tries to do, and he tries to... In essence, he tries to kind of play the father to the situation and and compliment him thinking this is his way out
0: Uh, and then we have this beautiful confrontation between Tyrell and Roy father
2: and son it's disturbing, Yeah,
3: it is unnerving it's
2: not an easy thing to meet your maker and what can he do for you and the maker repair what he makes would you like to be modified had in mind something a little more radical what what seems to be the problem death death well i'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction you i want more life
1: father and he even calls him father
3: yeah he calls you know and they get into a a scientific discussion of of the possibilities of like can we do this what about this well no because then this would get screwed up and he goes
2: you were made as well as we could make you But not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time.
3: Batty is is accepting defeat, but not without consequence. Kisses him, squeezes his head. And to this day, especially in the final cut, when Batty grabs Terrell's head and squeezes it, and and crushes yeah. his skull puts his fingers in his eyes and yeah. you see the blood spewing from his eyes oh, yeah. in the final cut yeah. i don't care how many times i watch that movie i have to turn away yeah. it is disturbing the prodigal son returns to kill the father
1: and the sounds that that actor makes
3: it's brutal it's, yeah it's very oh, yeah. just oh. scary oh. and sad oh. he's yeah. crying out oh. in pain oh. yeah. yeah yeah it's and and, it, and the owl yeah it's just, just the mechanical turning. owl yeah. just going That's back and so forth. Great. No remorse whatsoever.
1: <laughs> By the way, I do want to say one thing. What's so great about Terrell, and I think it's a costume, those glasses make oh, everything. The glasses oh, are great. They're ah, just the perfect... Yeah, those glasses. Sometimes it's just that one little extra thing, and it makes the whole character. <laughs> Particularly
0: yeah. because his death is going to come through his eyes. Yes, exactly. You know? And so we've been looking at focusing on his glasses
3: in this way. Right. Eyes. Um, yeah. Just like going back to uh, yeah, James, James Hong. Yeah. yeah, eyes. Yeah, you know, it's all in the eyes. But and the very beginning of the movie. Yes, right. The true. eye looking at you. And the von test right on the eye. Yeah. So yep. okay. Yeah,
0: yeah they play a big part. Uh, Deckard shows up at JF's place. Yeah.
3: And who does he run into but Pris? It's a slow build. You know, Deckard parks outside of uh, the Bradbury, and you know the music is just very, very calm. And as you see. Decker slowly making his way up the stairs to the Bradbury mm-hmm. watching his step, you know, trying to keep an eye on everything you see Pris like, her head moving back and forth yeah. in quick motions and like her eyes roll back in her head, she knows he's coming she knows he's coming so, he makes it to the top of the stairs, he gets in he sees a couple of the uh, toys yeah. the room That presses in covered with the veil. Yeah. The lighting in that room is gorgeous. And you have one of the toys like laughing. Yeah. And Decker is just itching his way (laughs) slowly but surely with his gun drawn, not knowing what is real and what is a toy. Right. Not realizing, like, you know, there's a couple real life figures in the room, not realizing yet that one of them is is prisk but you know she's covered and she's not moving nobody's moving and the, the cinematography and 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 then as he pulls the veil off and he's looking closer closer and closer into her eyes and she just punches him he goes flying across the room and he just you know and then she he she jumps on him and puts her legs around his head and and she's Beat the shit out of them. Yeah, she's yeah. terrifying.
0: And, and, yeah. and Daryl Hannah is great. By the way, she's she the is. one who introduced the idea of gymnastics because she had done some gymnastics that happened in the casting process. She said, oh, but if she does like walkovers and things. Yeah. But mostly that's not her doing all the, the big uh, back handsprings. Uh, I hope There's a female yeah. stuntman And then most of it's a guy
3: Oh really? Yeah oh, Is that
0: right? Yeah it's wow. a guy How do they tuck that thing in between Cause they, cause It she happens is... real fast Well if you look at it You go like There's
3: a much thicker person Doing <laughs> some of this So she's doing all our somersaults And doing all our gymnastics yeah. and, uh And Decker just composes himself Long enough To get a shot into her hmm and it is a loud yeah. shot of like the it's a sound big gun he's got Yeah, like it just goes right into her like her stomach Yeah, and she just starts she freaks out she is like you know like out of control mm-hmm. and it's a, it's disturbing to see her like that just like lose all control like that it's
1: very reminiscent of the thing in the sequence mm. with yeah, the, yeah, where, yeah, they, yeah. where they hit the, the where they're testing the blood and then they follow <laughs> And I think they, that's what she's doing. She's like screaming and she's screaming and sounding like an animal, like you're shooting an animal. Or if you've yeah. ever seen those videos of them shooting the cows or whatever, like it's scary the sounds that come out of an animal when they're killing it. And so that, that is what she, this high pitch squealing and the moving quickly. It gives you that feeling of a robot, of an Android, of this kind of like a ash
3: in alien. Yeah. It has that same kind of vibe,
1: you know, and, which and makes sense for that, oh, That's a good point. Yeah. And he is,
3: he too is an Android. Yeah. And so, so he, in, the, in the final cut, he, he shoots her again, and she's still writhing out of control. Right. And then he shoots her for a final time, and she just just dies. Yeah.
0: And, and, and again, similar to with uh, Zora's death, mm-hmm. we, the audience, we don't feel good about this. Like, you don't go... I mean, I do more than Zora's death, because at least he's yeah. in combat. But when she's writhing on the ground in agony, I don't go, good. I go, ooh. Okay. Yeah, it's I have disturbing a, I have a it's different disturbing.
1: reaction I, I say good Because she's been Lying to Sebastian This whole time mm. And so to me It's like you commit evil, this is your consequence. Like with Zora, I absolutely agree. Zora, I don't feel any, I feel sadness when Zora gets killed because Zora is just performing. She has, from, for all we know, she has nothing to do with what Roy's doing. There is no scene between them where she's like, okay, I want you to do this because then eventually we're going to kill everyone. Like there's nothing other, Zora's just performing. But with, with Pris, Pris is actively involved in this situation. And so when she gets killed, it's a, horrible sound and it's it's it unsettles you to no end but i also think it's a little
3: more of an excusable death mm. because of mm-hmm. the evil intentions right. that she has had so at this point batty comes home here comes roy here comes <laughs> roy oh, oh, oh and he comes home to find priss yes. dead, and he touches her blood mm. puts the blood against his face yes. and he goes priss yeah. he's the last one mm-hmm Tyrell is dead, so this is his last shot. He's dying. This is it. Yeah. So he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. So he goes in, and Deckard is waiting for him. And he runs by at the end of the hall. Deckard fires. He misses. Not very sporting to fire on an unarmed opponent. Arch is supposed to be a good man good man <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he goes uh, come on deckard show me what you're made of aren't you supposed to be a good man show me what you're made of <laughs> and then he like breaks his fingers yeah brutal yeah at this point the taunting that batty does with deckard is the stuff of great cinema Stay alive. Oh yeah. Yeah. So quotable.
2: Six. Seven. Go to hell
4: go to heaven. That's the spirit.
0: And we see. Two things. One is we see the power and the scariness of Roy Batty, and the other thing you see is the charisma and the genius of Rugger Howard. Yes, like his performance in this. This is one of those star-making performances. Yeah, like this sequence. His and and there's something that's at once sort of primal and animalistic Mm -hmm. in the way he plays it, and there's also something spiritual and holy Mm -hmm. that he is experiencing the moment of his own
3: death fully. Yeah, that's what we see. A nail. Through your palm. Well,
1: that's the thing. To me, he's he's there's Christ imagery, that's definitely. Christ especially no and especially because he strips down to basically what yeah. is a, a loincloth. Yeah. Uh, to fight him, right? Yeah. And he shoves that thing through his hand to be able to, and he saves his life. When Deckard is about to uh, to slip off the beam, he saves his life, you know, there's, there's, like the
3: way he like, you know, smashes, you know, he says, yeah. yeah. OK, I'm going to yeah. give you till 10. He's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, he and he the goes, head. a four, five, time to stay alive. Yeah. And, and the, you know, he's howling like a wounded animal. Yes. Yeah. And again, Deckard goes out on the, the ledge. And he goes, What are you doing? And he like get you know, smashes him in the head with the, the toilet scene yeah. and he goes, That hurt. I mean it's <laughs> so it's funny, yes. but it's a uh, but it's disturbing. Too. But he says that was unexpected. That's well, what he says. Yes. And there's
0: this great moment where he's he's leaning out the window in the fire escape. Yes, and he stops, Deckard's gone, and he stopped just for a moment to feel the rain on his face.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's this feeling of this is the last time. Yeah. Savor this moment. Yeah. And 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 our, you know there's oftentimes in, in most movies, most action films or whatever, you're with the good guy. Yeah. And in this movie, we are split. You know, our mm-hmm. our allegiance is we don't want Deckard to die. Right. But we don't want Roy to die either. No. You know, right. and we love you know you come to love him in this mm-hmm. moment, and the choice to save him. I, here's a quick question: Was he thinking about killing him, or was he always going to save him?
3: Well, okay. So <sighs> I, a the way I the way I I feel like. The, at the moment of his death is when Roy Batty became at his most human. He became human. He really became human at that moment. That, you know, he was just going to, I mean, he definitely was toying with Decker. He was going to kill oh, yeah, Decker. Yeah. But at the moment that his life was about to end, he realized how precious life really was. Yeah. So when Decker jumps across the, the, between the two buildings and he doesn't jump far enough and it's raining and he's slipping.
0: Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. By the way, that's the real stuntman not jumping far enough and grabbing onto that
3: film. <laughs> Holy that shit! That was not intentional, and then they made it intentional. Wow! Yeah. Oh, is that right? That's yeah. amazing. Wow, that is amazing because and it he, works and Boy so Boy well. grabs him, and he's got the nail through his hand, and yeah. he grabs him, and he lifts him up, and he puts him down, and Deckard, you know, like like sits back, like in fear, like oh, but you're gonna kill me, and. Freud does that beautiful mm-hmm. monolog lot? I've seen
2: things you people wouldn't believe. Hmm. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain.
3: Time to die. That he came up with and wrote himself. The end. Oh, wow. The end. Yes, the end. The, lo- the tears in rain. That's, and that's he's holding on hard. to the dove. Yeah. Which, by the way, when the dove flies away doves are not able to fly in rain just FYI <laughs> uh, but that last scene that the water is dripping down his face time to die Yeah. and he just shuts down Deckard is staring at him what rises behind Batty a spinner yep. who steps out of the spinner <laughs> Gaff. Yep. what does he say
4: you've done a man's
2: job sir
3: You've done a man's job, sir. You've done a man's job. (laughs) Yep. I guess you're through, huh? Finished. Yeah. He's walking away.
2: It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does?
3: Ah! Ah!
1: Which means, which means, he has figured out that she's a replicant too, or has it been like well, they all? I guess they all know I that she's a replicant, I right? I think they know. So, but why does he spare her? Why does Gaff spare her when he could take her out and take out Roy in that moment? Because he did a man's job. Okay, he did his job. Mm. I think Gaff spares him because of if he's been following him. Then he sees what Roy Batty does. Like why so was sees... he helping him? Well, I see. That's what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying when he watches, if he's been following him, then he's been watching Roy Batty. And in this whole sequence, he watches this whole sequence in the scene when Roy saves him instead of letting him die. Maybe Gaff in that moment realizes that there's goodness and a possibility of goodness in these replicants and understands their struggle and lets uh, Deckard and Rachel live.
3: And uh, for I, whatever I guess, reason, like 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 because Gaff was there, he was he was he was there the whole time yeah he was watching the entire time he saw it all i love this theory by the way and i mean as a lover of like, film like, it's it. it's not just one scene he shows either before yeah. shows up before or after key moments in the film yeah. when these rubber kids That's are true. dying I, and except for when 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 priss dies because yeah. you know that priss dies and then and then batty dies but but for him to just always be there right in the nick of time yeah like there's got to be a reason for it and i think it's because because he is the one sort of pulling the, the strings the whole time. He is, hmm. the he, like, Gaff is the Blade Runner. Well, okay.
0: whether or not, and, and by the, I have no objection to your theory. Right. Um, what we do know, if, if we are on the assumption that he's a replicant, which I think in the final cut, there's no question that that's true, then this whole thing is some kind of strange experiment right they're going what can we use replicants to hunt other replicants and what will happen it seems to be some kind of a not entirely controlled experiment Mm -hmm. and so the fact that Gaff is observing them at the end is we're observing this experiment you know (laughs) to see what happens and Steve it
1: reinforces the idea that he's
0: a unicorn yeah because he is an anomaly even within an anomaly. Well, just as Rachel's an anomaly, right? We're like, what, what? Those two. Yeah. What are we doing here? They're right. they're kind of an. an and then they could be the next yeah. stage.
3: Now, um, what I what I can't explain, what I what I can't figure out, is when Decker goes back to fetch Rachel. Yes, and you know, do you love me? I love you. And he grabs her, and they're going, and she, they're walking across to the elevator. And he picks up the he picks up the origami and he's looking at it, mm-hmm. and in his head he hears what Gaff said again. Right. It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? And as he's hearing the dialogue in his head, he's looking at the unicorn. He's looking at the origami, mm-hmm. and he's shaking his head. Yes, he's shaking his head like he understands. Yeah. Yep. does he yeah. understand that he's a replicant? That he's a replicant, or does he under,
1: or does he understand that like Gaff
3: spared her? Right, but but why but why right but I'm saying he spared her maybe like as a thank you to him in now, a way now, the, the, the director's cut the final cut they get in the elevator that's it thank right. god
1: thank god yeah. I love that ending I hate yeah. the, the
3: shot of them on the car
1: going away Like, where the fuck are you going yeah, by the way you know where those shots come from where
0: that's uh, outtakes from The Shining The Shining <laughs> <laughs> he called up Kubrick and said, "You must have shot more stuff." What? Yeah, that's bastards. What that is. Um, but, and I,
1: and did, does in the director's cut? I don't remember it. Does the dove still fly up into the sun? Yes, the, yeah. the, the brightly okay. lit sky, which yes. which yeah. makes After no Earth, sense at all.
3: Rain and, and meanwhile, again, the dove okay. is soaked because I it's been the raining dog. the whole I wish time they because, cut that out because uh, because uh, you know has been holding onto the yeah. dove the whole time. Right. There's which, There's no course way is that Jesus dove would have been too. able to fly, you know, because of the because it had been soaking wet. Right. But but by the way, that that that. Was shot on the last day of the shoot. Wow. And it was
0: a 27 hour day. What? 27 hour day. Oh and boy. They, they, ran, they couldn't shoot because the sun is rising, they're yep. shooting exteriors so they had to tear down that whole rooftop corner set and move it into a sound stage and continue to shoot the whole time. Good God. Alright, so you want to hear my theory.
3: Oh, here, here we, we oh, go. Alright. Okay. We so me know mine, but let's hear <laughs> yours.
0: Um, mine's more philosophical than uh, actual, but here's my theory. And if you know Steve Morris, this makes sense. Go ahead, yes. I was thinking about this movie a lot mm-hmm. and it's been obsessing me over the last several days and just keep thinking about it and when I finally came to it, and why the Movie is so unsettling, and why it is so unique is that Deckard is not the hero. Is that Deckard is the villain? He's a bad guy. Is that if you look at the course of this movie, and it's both with the theatrical version and the director's cut, is this is a guy who shows minimal amounts of remorse? He, we meet him. He's pushed fairly easily into going back to his job of being Mm -hmm. essentially an assassin. Mm -hmm. He goes to. Uh, when he first sees Rachel, when she comes to his apartment, he callously destroys her, mm-hmm. shoots Zora in the back. And, yeah, does he feel a little bad? Yeah, a little bit. Then he is fairly pushy in the sex department with Rachel. He's whole he never There's never a sense of, like, he's going to save Sebastian or Tyrell. That's not his motivation. Mm. His motivation is to kill these people. That's it. And as they become more human in our eyes, Mm -hmm. I think when you feel more compassion for them, there is nothing in him that is doing anything for a noble reason, almost at all throughout the film, as opposed to imagine this movie, because I think this is what, so here's this story about these slaves. Mm-hmm. that are living out in space. And we have a warrior slave and a, a worker slave and a sex slave, literally a mm-hmm. sex slave. And somehow they manage to find each other and they form a family. And there's tons of evidence that these people think of themselves as a family. Yeah. They manage through some heroic means that we don't know to escape bondage. Yep. They go back home. What's their only motivation? Their only motivation is for freedom yeah. and for life. Okay. In this film, they do not actually attack any innocent people. I don't think none of the people that get hurt are innocent. Well, Sebastian is Sebastian who has been part of designing the slave race. Okay. This is a massive genocide. Millions of people of human. And what do they say about them? They say, well, after four years, they start to develop emotions and a sense of identity. And so that is when we make sure that they die. Mm -hmm. So we've created a race of sentient beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, Normal humans get a sense of identity at about four years old, Mm -hmm. but we've determined that we are going to, despite the fact that they are sentient and have real emotions, that we are going to kill all of them at four years, because that's when they stop being useful by doing things like being sex slaves and warriors. Mm -hmm. So they come back, they find their makers, and to me, by the way, killing Tyrell is a completely justified act, the guy's like a Hitler. You know, um, it is totally justified. And while they're doing this, there is some guy who is killing one by one every member of their family. Mm-hmm. And so they're the heroes. My the theory heroes works film. in
3: conjunction with yours. You realize that? Oh, My the- theory works in conjunction with sure. yours. <laughs> because first of all, Roy Batty is the most sympathetic character in this movie. You're right. I, the, I don't the, agree the that. The okay. replicants are like, it's like the Fast and Furious of the Blade Runner series. We're family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, you know, when, when like Leon dies and, and Batty goes to Pris and he says, you know, it's only two of us now. I mean, he's, he shows more emotion than anybody mm-hmm. else And when Pris
0: death, this is his daughter. This is Chris. his, this is his sister. So it's, it's his girlfriend. I don't know. I think it's his girlfriend.
4: girlfriend.
1: Whatever it is, yeah. it's he, love. It's yeah. pure, true Absolutely. love. Absolutely. That he kneels
3: down to her, touches her lips and yeah. touches her her wounds and puts the blood on his face. Yeah. Was the was the biggest the biggest demonstration of humanity next to next to Batty saving Bat well, uh, Right uh, and this is goes Deckard. to
0: what is Roy, what is Roy's most important choice in the film? He has the person who has murdered his family. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And what does he choose to do in the last moments of his life? He doesn't kill him. Instead, he says, I'm going to try to spend my last moments teaching the person who has murdered my family that I am human and my life has meaning. That's certainly fair, Steve. Again,
3: great theory. Yeah. I love it. Works in conjunction with mine.
0: Sure.
1: I
3: don't don't 100% agree. By the way, I'm not knocking down your theory. Yeah. Yeah. I don't
1: 100% agree because you're conveniently leaving out uh, Deckard's moments of humanity. There are uh, a few. There are a few, quite a few in this film. There are moments where he he does not force Rachel to have sex with him. I, I disagree with that completely. Uh, Only the yeah. moment when he pushes her against the wall and then he's relaxed. But way he makes love to her, he makes they make love to each other, that is a real, very tender moment. Okay. And uh, when he shows remorse for Zora, that is legitimate remorse there. He resists to, he doesn't want this job we we can't conveniently forget that fact it's at the beginning true. of this film he wants to turn this job down he does not want to have to do this right and what's his face pins him into a corner and says he has to do it the only person he kills is uh, a Pris he does not kill Rachel he does not kill Roy he doesn't kill Leon and, it, well, he kills Zora. I guess he kills Zora. Right, yes. So that's the moment was he of going remorse. To kill,
0: was he going to kill Roy? Uh, he was. Well, Did I he think he was going Leon? to
1: get there to kill Roy, yeah, probably. Well, and
0: this is what's interesting, too. with the But th- Chris attacks first, and this is what's interesting. They removes, he removes his impetus. His job is to kill them. Right. There's no, his job is not to arrest. I mean, right. honestly, they're going to die next week anyway. But if his, his job, job is to kill is them, ins-
1: why doesn't he just kill her in the fucking dressing room? While she's in the shower
0: uh, it's, a, it's a good question That's what I'm saying to you this, There's something I'll else here I'll tell you why Because he liked checking her out That's oh, why Oh Jesus
1: Christ Shut <laughs> up <laughs> I don't agree <laughs> with that at all <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> That's good. I like that, Steve. Uh, but yeah, but I, my, my feeling is that he is exploring this for himself as well. And we don't know. All we know is what they tell us at the beginning that he's he's a specialist in this. But we don't know if those memories are implanted in him. And he's and
0: we've never seen it. And he's never actually killed anybody. No, that's very true. And, and that's what I well, enjoy about and the And it's movie. interesting, too. Like One of the differences in the theatrical... But your theory works. Your theory works. One of the difference in, in the theatrical version uh, is that... Because originally I thought, oh, the voiceover is just there to explain stuff we don't understand. Right, right. It actually isn't. Thinking about it this time is that almost every one of those voiceovers is an attempt to humanize him, to separate yes. him from the evil of what he is actually doing. That's a great point. So so in the first, you know, we meet M.M. Um, at uh, M. 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 Walsh, and he says... Skin
2: jobs. That's what Bryant called replicants. In history books, he's the kind of cop used to call black men niggers.
0: You know, so it shows, oh, he sees the racism of this guy. He goes... Uh, This will go in the books after Zora dies. The report
2: would be routine retirement of a replicant which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. There it was again.
0: Feeling in myself for her. So what we hear throughout the theatrical version is him mulling over, mm-hmm. are these humans or are they not? Right. Um, and that both makes him more human. It doesn't make him less of the bad guy to me. Okay. You know, because you, in, in the theatrical version, he's contemplating their mm-hmm. humanity, but still acting in the same way. If you're contemplating their humanity, if he, set, if he makes the comparison between replicants and black people at the very beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. then what he is doing is even more evil. Yeah. Because he's already seen them as human. That's fair. If we take that out, then we don't have that window into his soul. But he's our protagonist, so it's his journey, right? And no so, question and about I, it.
1: And I agree. And it's I don't just think, the
0: journey of a bad guy.
1: I don't know if I would say that, but I, but I, you know, but I see your point. I see your theory. I just think the the I think that end moment with Roy is really powerful, right? Because he, beautiful, and, and that's the only voiceover that I think should stay in the film is when he says,
2: "I don't know why he saved my life." Maybe in those last moments, he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life, anybody's life.
3: And I think there's a power in that. That is oh, isn't... That, well, that's that's the that's that's the but, he's. You're right. I agree that that is actually the best uh, of of all the the snippets of his voiceover. Right. But it's also something that that we get anyway. Yeah. I mean, just you know that like he's just. Looking at him, yeah, after the blinking he shuts down, he, yeah, yeah, you know, the way he just like has that heart blink, yeah. like he, re- he was human, right? He was human, right. By the way, the movie of the replicants coming
0: into consciousness and escaping their slavery as a family, I want to make that movie. That prequel movie, the
1: revolution.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's the movie that I want to make. I think if 2049 blows up. Write it, it Steve. Yeah. Do it. <sighs> if 2049 it blows up, Runner, why not? You can have the Blade Runner cinematic universe. Can you hook me up with uh, Ridley Scott? <laughs> I might be able going? to. Yeah, there you go. Right, I so might be able understand. to. All right. Well,
0: th- this is this cinephiles is suddenly worth it, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is. All right. <laughs> Scott, could I ask you for your final thoughts on Blade Runner?
3: My my final thoughts on Blade Runner is that Blade Runner is like a fine wine. It gets better with age. The fact that more people have discovered the film through the years. They've watched it over and over and over again. They have developed their own theories like the three of us have, Mm. that they've dissected and absorbed the film, that it has influenced so much throughout Hollywood history these last 35 years, that that the film has topped a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey as the most groundbreaking and influential sci-fi movie of all time, that the themes that the movie explores about humanity have been explored so many times on film and in T V shows like Battlestar Galactica, yeah. like Westworld. Uh oh, yeah. and, and absolutely You know what I mean? Like and especially as we go further and further into the twenty first century where where the themes of the you know, what it means to be human will become not just the stuff of entertainment, but reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh I feel like Blade Runner will will continue to manifest itself as a movie that will continue to get better with age. Mm-hmm. Agreed. What about you? This is one of my favorite films
1: ever. It is one that whenever I revisit it, I'm im immediately immersed in the world. It shakes my heart from beginning to end. It echoes inside my heart uh, from beginning to end because of what it explores, what it exposes, and what it causes, the journey it causes you to go on, as Scott was saying here, the themes that you have to explore. But also... Cinematically, it's one of the most amazingly beautiful sci-fi films to watch. Still, still ahead of its time, even yeah. here in 2017. I think it's Harrison Ford's best performance, in my opinion, of any film he's ever been in. And I think Sean Young is, n- is never better. I think Daryl Hannah is never better. Yeah, Rutger Hauer is never better. Agreed. This is, all, and I would say, and I would argue that Ridley Scott is never better. And this whole film is a moment in time where everyone is in their prime, and it is one of the most fantastic pieces of film and it may be the greatest noir ever this side of Touch of Evil which we have yeah. already talked about on on the cinephiles and one thing I think is really interesting that we didn't touch on is Roy's poem. When he walks in and he, and he says, you know, the fiery angels that Fire fell, angels deep fell. thunder rolled around their shores, burning with fires of Orc. It's adapted from uh, Blake's America, A Prophecy. The actual line is, fiery the angels rose and they rose deep thunder rolled around their shores, indignant burning with the fires of Orc. The Orc is this powerful creature. And the story of the orc is the son killing the father. The old young replacing the old. And it is this whole thing. And so there's so much about this that that is evocative. And when I watched it in my 20s, got it. When I watched it in my 40s, powerful like it's like as my life is ending as i'm getting close to my life ending there's more power in this movie than it was when i watched it in my 20s i no longer watch it as a cinematic masterpiece now i watch it as a treatise on
3: life and well, that's just, what this just movie to, is. to clarify what you said you know ridley scott has never been better and it is even better than Alien. <laughs> yes! Yes! You, yes! Listen, that yes, was what makes the cinephiles <laughs> worth it, mister. <laughs> that is it. Finally, you, you, yes! You can't <laughs> claim
1: my one movie fights and then try to destroy every point I made. All right. <laughs> <laughs> there
0: we go. All right. Um, Steve, your <laughs> final thoughts. Your my thoughts, thought, yes, final thoughts, mister. My thoughts. Well, uh, first of all. Uh, I was, when I watched it with my wife, she said something, and I think she might be right, which is that this might be the best, the most beautiful designed film of any film I can think of. The look of this film is unlike anything else. Mm-hmm. Every single detail, every single color, every single every single prop, set design, costume design, it is Absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting to me that I was thinking about is this gets partially it's because of Harrison Ford. It gets put with those movies like Star Wars and Empire and Raiders and all of these films. And anyone going to see it, I think, would have the same reaction that you had as a kid, which is that this is not one of Mm -hmm. those in fact, in a lot of ways, this is more of a 70s movie than an 80s movie. Oh, That's wow. That's the reason is yeah. that yeah. it Good is point. dark. Mm-hmm. It is brooding. It is hard to decipher. It has a lot of complicated questions that mm-hmm. it just leaves out there and mm-hmm. doesn't answer. Um, and well, one of the interesting things I found watching it this time... so. so uh, when, when we're getting ready to do a movie, I always watch a movie with my iPad in my lap because I take copious notes. Because I want to, like, every thought that occurs to me, something I want to do research on, something I want to explore, anything from behind the scenes, I'm always taking notes when I watch the film. When I watch Blade Runner, I barely took a note. <laughs> I just didn't have anything to write down. Right. And part of that was I was just in the film. Yeah. And part of that is that I just was like, I don't know what to say. Yeah. You know? And then it took days and days since I watched it and thinking about it and thinking about it to figure out what I wanted to say about the film. That's how profound I found this Mm -hmm. film. When I watched it, it stunned me to silence. And those of you who know me know <laughs> I am not an easy person to shut up. It's very true. So, so
1: stun into, si- yeah. into silence. I would say to stun into silence. I wouldn't say shut up. But what you said, Steve, is absolutely and I echo hundred percent what you say. This is above those films. It's above Star Wars. It's above to me, it's a more elevated take on science fiction than what you'd find in Star Wars. Or Star Trek, or anything else, and Star Trek does explore these themes more powerfully than Star Wars does. But there's
0: something about Blade Runner that's a whole uh, other level. I don't I like. Agree. I don't. Yeah. I don't like above. I like to well, me. That's why I'm yeah, saying it. Yeah. I'm saying it. I understand that. Yes. but I to me it's just a different continent. Like I, I don't like to put. Well, that's like, fair. I don't like to take genre. You know, because it's like is Lawrence of Arabia a deeper film than um uh Godfather than Airplane? Okay. Yes, yes it is. It is. But is airplane is at the top of its of where it is? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so this is not this is apples and oranges to to Empire Strikes well, Back. Well, sci-fi hey, genre it's an
3: entirely different kind of thing. Yeah. together, all together. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you say
1: things transcend? Wouldn't you say it transcends? I of think it course. transcends the genre. It does. It That's does. what I would say. Yeah,
3: ab- yeah. it absolutely
0: okay. transcends the genre. Surely, you can't be serious. <laughs> I am serious, and don't Stop call me sure. <laughs> Okay, so that's what we. My father think of says Blade you do hustle
3: back on defense. Yeah. Okay. Hey, yeah. Hey, the light zone is for the immediate loading and unloading of passengers. <laughs> all right, that's enough. Have you ever been, so been to a Turkish white bath? Zone. You're the one who wants to have an abortion.
0: <laughs> all right. So next time on the Cinephiles with Scott Mans, you want to do airplane? Airplane. Yes. Airplane. Oh my it god. is. Oh my airplane god. Airplane. It is. Really? Yeah. All right. Let's uh, do it. I love it. Okay. So that's what we think way, of Blade Runner. It was Runner. then
3: that I discovered that I had a drinking problem.
0: Oh, so many great lines. Hey, wait, wait. That- what a pisser. Oh, my God. <laughs> I knew I'd pick the last week to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> so that's what we think about Blade Runner. We want to hear what you think about Blade Runner. Visit us on Facebook at The Cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Subscribe to us on Stitcher, C-I-N-E-No-Dash Files. You can subscribe to us on iTunes when you're on iTunes. Leave us a review. You haven't done it yet. You know you want to. It's time. <laughs> you owe it to The Cinephiles and to yourself. To leave us a review if you don't how will we know that you're fully human
3: yes make sure you go back and watch blade runner and one hour and eight minutes you will see harrison ford's <laughs> eyes glow proving yes. that he is a replicant and trust yeah. me gaff is the blade runner
0: <laughs> and and maybe they should visit you on twitter when they yes, find uh, that you Where can would they le-
3: visit? You know, definitely hit us up on twitter you can find me my handle is at movie mance that's what the tz i'm also on instagram at uh, movie Mance, and you can watch me uh, on access hollywood and you can watch me uh, uh on the Schmeldown and uh on movie fights uh <laughs> with my arch enemy john stephen roca
0: <laughs> um and you can reach me at sr morris on twitter and john where can they reach you
3: you guys can always reach me at the roca says
1: r-o-c-h-a on twitter and on instagram every friday on collider movie talk of obviously the cinephiles please subscribe to us on our on our YouTube page as oh, well. Oh, that's please. right. We have a YouTube page. Uh, every one of these goes right to YouTube so you can watch them in the privacy of your home while you're cleaning your house or hanging out at your house if you don't want to listen to it on, a, on a iTunes. And so th- we want to make this as accessible to everybody as possible. And I want to thank everybody who's commented, who's sent us tweets, who's pushed us into the top tier of TV and film for Podomatic. Thank you so much for doing that for us. We really appreciate it. And Scotty, definitely. Mance, uh, Mance, Star Trek Two put us up in the number oh. six yeah. or seven. So yeah. That. Yeah, you oh, were that's amazing. Great. People were so in, in love the the podcast that oh, episode. Oh, that makes yeah. me happy.
3: So yeah. thanks, so thanks, thanks for if having me on again, it. again, fellas. I appreciate and it.
0: And I want to personally thank you for coming because I always love. Oh, thank doing you, man. A movie it's, with you, It's yeah. always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's been great having you, Scott. Thanks, um, Steve. And that's it for this week. We will see you next time on the Cinephiles.